Welcome to another riveting episode of Hollow Waters Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Matthias Supinski. I'm German today, and we are back and breathing clean air, God-given right to breathe for all humanoids on this planet, as we have had all kinds of smoke-filled air warnings and all kinds of nastiness in the air, which we will talk about, but we are still flying our drone around the galaxy to bring you, and we have not gotten shot down yet, day 600 of giving you the finest in broadcasting for trout, Atlantic salmon, steelhead destinations around this wonderful planet, so we could bring you our cognito ergo sum. As a former fly fishing personnel, Rene Descartes said, the thinking mans and today, especially the thinking ladies, fly fisher, that delves deep into the subject matter of what we talk about, all these mind-filled, spirit-filled adventures that we take. And we don't um, dumb it down. We don't give you the skinny. We keep it live and exciting and fresh and passionate. And that's what we do. So we have taken a break uh, to observe the sabbatical for the holy mayfly season from the Hendricksons to the Sulphurs to the American March Browns to the Hexagenius to the Grey Drakes, the Brown Drakes, and they keep coming and coming. And now a whole different mayfly season has started with this actually wonderful weather that we've had in the Midwest, 70s and 50s at night. And it's just been incredibly crazy, beautiful. So our trichos have started, our little tiny bluing of pseudocleans have started. And uh, we have gotten so many correspondences. Thank you, all you listeners and subscribers out there. And you thought we were gone and missing if you didn't hear us for a month, but we were delving into this hatch-matching, code-cracking, bug-crazed crusaders that we are. And to all you trout bum troubadours, you dirty nymphing ninja warriors, savage slinging streamer guys, and least we not forget the perfect D-loop sustained anchor, space of oars so we could bring you all this and keep it going and keep the vibe and the verb and the mental stamina and today the moxie that we will bring you to all you listeners and subscribers so thank you very much for all the correspondences uh we did not fall our drone did not get shot down in our eib excellence in broadcasting booth here that we have and today with a very very special guest that everyone is going to enjoy tremendously um so yeah a lot of stuff has gone on since we were off the air our last one was with um our spring creek god special brew podcast that we did with our wonderful guests that wrote the book on spring creeks and mike lawson who we had a great time talking four hours on spring creeks and between the two of us we have given you the whole bible i think it's sort of like a mini book on tape or large book on tape that we gave you but today's our subject matter is going to give you even more excellence in this area um and so we've had canadian wildfire smoke around the holidays it was absolutely brutal it looked like the day after tomorrow type stuff with floods and then we had floods we've had a worse drought we've had in the midwest the east coast has been getting pounded with rain all my brothers in the catskills have been complaining that it's been so wet floods and floods and now we have cool weather here um and uh politically you know it's the same old pin the tail on the donald donkey uh saving hunter biden our president has been on not saving private ryan but hunter biden uh we almost got the ukraine thing resolved when uh our Wagnerian guy tried to 
direct a coup at that madman in Moscow. And uh, so it was really exciting. But um, today is going to be something really special for, for us here at Hollow Waters Podcast. We've never had uh, a ladies podcast on. And uh, we are really excited about this. Um, you know, uh, it's going to be something that I think a lot of us never give us a lot of thought to, especially us macho males. We, you know, we always think that we're we're in command of this sport, but we're going to get into a lot of this great topic. Um, and uh, I'm going to be using the talent that I have today and my guests to steer the way with this thing because uh, I'm sort of into virgin territories with this trying to be um you know in you know try to document all the greatness that 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 ladies have given us in this sport along the way and our our person today is uh a very astute guest and knowledgeable and we're going to give it a tremendous introduction to her because of of the things she has accomplished also uh on another note the women's world cup is going on if you soccer fanatics are out there the ladies are playing the world cup and i am a soccer broadcast podcaster and also there are soccer friendlies tonight is barcelona and juventus they are playing in i think san francisco santa clara so if you soccer listeners out there, we get tons and tons of emails from soccer listeners around the globe. So that is what's going on. And also, uh, I got bitten by a spider. So by the way, I'm now a full-fledged agoraphobiac, and I walk outside looking for spiders because I am totally petrified, and it took me out for almost a week. So do not get bit by a spider, please, because they will bring you down. Those things, if you get bit by the wrong one, are bad. So anyways... <sighs> After that long introduction, geez, I can't talk anymore. But is it time to go yet, guest? No, no, we, we still got to do a podcast. But anyways, enough of my bull crap. And now um, our topic today, a lady's fly fishing passion, the legacies, the stigmas, the discrimination in their journey of fly fishing for trout and Atlantic salmon. Uh, a, a heady topic, uh, a topic that deserves full attention, full coverage, uh, in-depth coverage, because it, it's... It's truly something that uh, we don't realize that a lady and her cohort started fly fishing. And we always think of it as a male thing. And we're going to talk a lot about how the discrimination in things like golf and fly fishing and other sports like that came about. Uh, and we're going to try to crack down those barriers and track down that stigma. So anyways, uh, my guest today has a wonderful resume. She's the editor-in-chief and publisher of the International Fly Fishing Lifestyle magazine, Dunn Magazine. She is a she has a desire to grow the sport quickly by telling her story to empower others, specifically women, to pick up a fly rod and better educate themselves in all things related to the sport. She began writing women's columns in the Midwest Fly Fishing magazine, a magazine that I liked, I wrote a lot about for, and uh, she had a great uh, column called The Tight Loop. And quickly realized that there was a need for Fly Fishing Magazine that told the everyday angler story from a female perspective. Dunn Magazine was created out of the relation realization and exists to this day to empower women while not ignoring men. Since its creation in 2013, Dunn has become the home base for women not to only learn, but to tell their stories and know that they belong in the fly shop, on the river, and in front of the drift boat. Her expertise and passion for the sport has earned her widespread recognition, including being named recently Southern Southerner of the Year by Southern Living Magazine, actually a wonderful magazine. If you don't get it, subscribe to it. 
and the food recipes on it are truly amazing. And her recent induction into the prestigious Southern Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. She is currently considered one of the top women changing the sport of fly fishing. There's no question about it. I have been following her for years. I've been a big fan. I've been a groupie. Um, and apart from her fly fishing endeavors, she is also an avid upland hunter and an outdoor writer with an impressive writing portfolio and renowned publications such as Outside, Game and Fish, Gray Sporting Journal, Florida Sportsman, and many others. She has served on the boards of outdoor organizations including AFTA, uh, FFI, Arpeth River Conservancy, and is currently the president of the board of directors of the Professional Outdoor Media Association. She has become a sounding board for women in the currently male-dominated sport. Wow, that was a long one. Plus, our lady guest, and I didn't mess it up that bad. Plus, our lady guest does not does have energy with four daughters and how many grandchildren? I think we're going to talk about that. So, without further ado, Monsieur, Madame, Monsieur, she is a modern-day madam of the finest Dom Juliana's archival alluring ancestry. She is restoring the regal reverence that all lady fly fishers foster with their fishy fortitude and finely forged feminine finesse. I bet you can't say that 10 times. She is putting the female touch in the Female Fly Fishing Foundation, so rightly fostered and sometimes forgotten. She is the one and only Jen Ripple. How the hell are you today, Jen Ripple? I am doing well, thank you. I don't know that I have ever had that introduction ever in my whole life. <laughs> so thank you for that. And the whole studio is clapping here for Jen Ripple. Uh, that was, yeah, that was, I, I like I like playing. Just go to the source and play with words and you could, that's my little, that's my little touch to my little, little podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, tell us where you've been. You were at ICAST and I want you to tell us a little bit about that and what you've seen and uh, tell our listeners, some people don't know what ICAST is. And then you were recently out West and all that great stuff. So tell us all what you've been up to, Jen. Yeah. So uh, in the last two weeks, I've been home one day. I got home late yesterday. <laughs> so bright and early starting a podcast. But uh, two weeks ago, I was at ICAST, which is the largest fishing uh trade show in the world and so where all the brands come together to uh show their new products there's a new product showcase where uh media and retailers get to vote on what they think the best in categories will be and the best in show then overall and uh after um so iftd used to be part of ICAST and they separated a couple of years ago, which personally I think was a really poor choice, but what do I know? Um, and now ICAST itself, which is run by the ASA, has been bringing back fly into that show. And this year they had a whole section that was just fly with a big fly shop set up where people were tying flies all week long and a casting pond that was dedicated just to fly anglers. And so really exciting to see fly come back to that really massive show that happens every July in Orlando because everyone wants to be in Orlando in July. <laughs> Everybody wants to be in Orlando in July. And uh, so it was pretty damn hot, wasn't it? Oh, my God. It was so hot. <laughs> how was the uh, how was the dinners at night? Did you experience any good cuisine when you went to these dinners? Because that's all you guys do at these shows is you party, you party, you party, go to dinner, spend a lot of money. <clears throat> and uh, and so I know I know what you guys do. I, I go to shows a lot, too. So uh, tell us uh, any good food you have. 
Uh, yeah, actually. So I was there on behalf of um, the fly brands, Hardy uh, and Grace, which is owned by Pure Fishing. And uh, sure, we had a dinner one night. I, I don't even remember what all the names of the restaurants were at this time, but we had fantastic Mexican food and really great margaritas. But you're right. Every day at the show at four o'clock, it's like the show ends and happy hours start. So every, you know, throughout the whole show, there's a whole bunch of booths that have a beer and specialty cocktails and music playing. And so it just becomes this giant party. And then of course, afterwards, like after even the show closes, so that's from like four to six. And then after six o'clock, everybody goes to dinner and it's the time to see your friends and meet with media and retail. Then go to exotic and dancer clubs after that. Correct. <laughs> I've never been to those, but I do hear about those. Maybe you're talking about shot show. I'm not sure. Is it shot show the, the That's where the good old boys, those good old boys go to them shot shows, man. They get they get taken care of. I'll tell you what. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, when you think about shot show, which is the largest trade show for like um, shooting sports and guns in the in the world that happens in Vegas at the same time that that the adult entertainment shows oh, are going God. That's always a really bizarre time. <laughs> that's toxic. That's a toxic environment. That's just a yes. toxic thing. It is. So at least iCast is is a much more tame kind of um, venture every year. But it's really fun because you get to, you know, see all of your friends in the, in the industry that you haven't seen in a while. And they have some great seminars going on and just a, a whole bunch of fun. But part, for me, part of the fun is walking around and seeing what new innovative products they've come out with in the last, you know, year or so. So where do you think it's going? Where do where where is the sport going? Do you think we've peaked? Have we have have we you know have we river ran through it again? Did we run through it? Are we mending now? I noticed there was a new movie came out, mending lines and mending, and we're doing a lot of healing, and it, it's sort of corresponding to our you know our our society today. Everything's healing, and we're safe zones and this. Where do you where do you see the sport going? Where what's what's your opinion, John? So you're talking about the sport, not specifically the trade shows, right? Yeah, you know, sport uh, and the trade show. And the trade show usually is is sort of a zeitgeist of, you know, a spirit of what's happening. Where, where, this whole thing, we went through COVID. COVID gave us a big boom uh, in, in fly fishing. Uh, you know, everybody wanted to get outside and breathe fresh non-COVID air. Um, and then, you know, now Yellowstone and, and Montana is like, is like, is like New Jersey and New Jersey goes to Montana. I love you, New Jersey people in New Jersey. I love New Jersey. So leave me alone. Don't write me nasty emails. Um, but, um, what do you see? You know, you're, you know, I always like a woman's perspective because they, they have a better men just sort of plod through everything. You know, we're just going to buy it and do it. You know, women have a very introspective, and we're going to talk about that, why they're so good at fly fishing. But what's your perspective on fly fishing as a whole? Yeah, so I think as far as the trade shows are concerned, you know, we you just talked about how the pandemic gave us a huge push into the fly market. And I think that it did the opposite for trade shows. So during the pandemic, obviously, a lot less people attended trade shows, trade shows shut down. I think that trade shows are still struggling from that. Um, I It'll be interesting to see the numbers. It seemed to me from where I was in the show that numbers were down for ICAST. I know that things like Outdoor Retailer, their numbers have been down in that. So it's interesting. Um, I, I don't know how long trade shows will be around. Um, consumer shows, I think, will still be around because I do believe that um, fly, especially from the woman's perspective, has been growing. So 
Um, women have already always been in the sport, but for so long, it's, you know, when women went back into, you know, during the industrial age, when women went back into the house and men went out to work, it, they stepped away from all things that were outdoors. Whereas before women were always outside, they were always hunting, fishing, had to supply food for their family. So it was an unusual thing for them not to be outdoorsy. And then, you know, as women became these little um, delicate things that had to go into the house because they would get the vapors or whatever, they, um, you know, it became much more of a, a man's sport. And so it's it's been interesting and fun to watch women grow by leaps and bounds in in fly and yeah. in, in general. But um, over the last, I'd say, and don't quote me here, probably six years. Um, and I get a little I get a little, it's like the pandemic years, all of a sudden, like those are erased from my mind. So something that I think was three years ago was actually six years ago. So, yeah, um, you know, yeah. I, we found a huge influx and women have become the fastest growing demographic in fly fishing in a number of years. So. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. So, you know, Jen, uh, where did it all start for you? Um, and congratulations, by the way, into your, uh, Southern, you know, Museum of Fly Fishing indictment, uh, indictment, induction, <laughs> indictment. I, I haven't been indicted yet. Maybe next. I, th I keep thinking the Don pin the tail on the Donald Donkey trophy. <laughs> on Donald indictment. I just hear the word indictment. You know, you know, it's really interesting. We, we've had Canadian wildfires. You know, the world looked like the day after tomorrow when you look at the New York City skyline. Okay, we've had you know Russian potentially a nuclear war go up if if this crazy Wagner Pogozhnitsyn or whatever his name Pogozhordan was going to attack Russia. And if you turn CNN on, they're still talking about indicting Donald Trump. Isn't this mind-boggling? I mean, it, it the man has more power than anybody on the planet, I think, at this point, because that's all we do is talk about that crazy maniac. But um, anyways, um, let me that's not no more politics. Um, but so where, do, you know, where did, you know, we talk about COVID and you know, COVID was just a few years ago and we, it's like. We blocked it out. It's it's already erased. And we were all sitting there, you know, locking ourselves up for the for the doomsday machine. And and everything sort of accelerated after that. And so did I think fly fishing accelerated. And now you go to Montana, you go to Idaho, you go any place in the world, you know, there's just people, just people everywhere. And and it's it's good. We really like the fact that people are outside, but now people are bitching, man, there's too many people on the river. You go to the Catskills. We just did a five-part series for all you people out East that listen to the Catskill series, you know, and, and you say, I can't fish those rivers anymore because there's just too many people. Well, people are getting outdoors, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, and now how do we regulate it? How do we start preserve our fish? We're doing hoot owl regulations again in, in Montana. Uh, and Montana's, you know, thank God there's no wildfires out there, but it's getting hot uh, here in the Midwest. Come to the Midwest. Everybody come to my river, please, and fish it because it's cool and it's wonderful. So we need more people here. So you could come here to the Midwest and come to Jen's favorite fishing hole and make sure you go right by Jen's favorite hole because she has plenty of room for you. Right, Jen? Um, just kidding. Um, so where did it all start for you um, as a lady possessed by fly fishing, um, and you're a Wisconsinite, you're a cheesehead, I think, and uh, God, we love cheeseheads, and I had another cheesehead on here, Kirk Dieter, and he's he was a cheesehead, he was from Milwaukee, so I like, I love Wisconsin, I love brats, and I love their, all their great cheeses, and it's just a great state for fly fishing, tremendous trout fishing, tremendous uh, steelhead and salmon fishing and, and everything and the Bob Brewer River, but where, where did it all start for you, and how did you get possessed? Give us the whole rundown. 
Sure. Um, so it, I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, it was a really, really cold winter. And I was looking for something to do, you know, and I was never the type to sew or crochet or paint or anything like that. Um, and so I opened up Craigslist, of all things, back when Craigslist was really a big deal. And I found a fly tying class at the local fly shop, which was called Colton Bay. And Colton Bay, yeah. yeah, Colton Bay. And um, I honestly, I took it because it sounded like it was interesting. I, I, I kind of knew what it was, but had no idea what it was at the same time. And I, uh, I took it, I took it because I signed up because it was really inexpensive. It was like, I can't remember if it was like eight classes for 65 bucks or six classes for 85 bucks, something like that. And, uh, and then the day, the first day that the class was going on, it was really brutally cold and it was snowing. And I was like, I'm not going to go. It's kind of like, you know, going to the gym. The hardest part is actually getting there. And so, uh, but I put on my, put on my winter boots and packed my car and away I went and I walked in the fly shop. And from the moment I walked in the fly shop, I felt like I was home. And it's hard to explain that feeling to someone who has never had it, but I feel like fly is such a big black hole that once you get involved, there's just no turning back. And so for me, that moment was walking in the fly shop and I fell in love with Everything from the shop dogs to the fly tying materials to the cigars and the whiskey that you had after on the porch of the fly shop, everything about it just like resonated with me. And that is by far a day that changed my life. That is absolutely wonderful. Um, and so what, you know, what keeps you driving going right now? I mean, what, what is, uh, do you have to fish? How often do you fish? How much do you probably with, with all the activities you got going on, do you fish as much as you want? You were just out in Utah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely do more talking about fishing than I like to do fishing. So, um, yeah, I find myself talking about it a lot more than actually being on the water these days, uh, which is something that I need to change, but I'm, I'm very busy. You know, I, I have a couple companies and I work a, a different full-time job apart from the magazine. You know, all of my kids are grown and raised. So I have a lot of free time on my hands. And so I like to always be busy. So I guess that we're called, John, excuse me, you don't make a, you make a probably about 2 million with, with the fly fishing industry, right? Oh, oh yes, by far. Anyone who yeah. wants to make a million dollars should definitely get into the fly industry because, you know, it's funny that you say that because everybody thinks like you own a business, so you have deep pockets. And then they think, oh, wow, you, you're in the, you're in the fly fishing industry. And so fly fishing is so expensive. You must be making a whole bunch of money. That that is the biggest farce I have ever heard in my whole life. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. If you want to lose a lot of money, get into fly fishing. If you want to be poor and living in a van down by the river, you're going to be in fly fishing. And my wife casts me every day. When are you going to get a job? And I say, <laughs> you know, Lori, I'm still working on it, man, but give me some time. So, but I did, I was a hotel uh, executive. I got as far as like assistant vice P vice president of food and beverage operations for a major corporation. And then I threw it all away to be poverty stricken and living in a van down by the river. So God bless all you ladies and men out there trying to become millionaires in fly fishing. It's not going to happen. So, uh, but anyways, you'll enjoy being poor and being poor is the best of all times because rich people are miserable and I don't want to be one of them and you don't either, but anyways, keep going. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I just fell in love with everything that was fly. And then um, that was at, 
I, so I came to fly through the back door of fly tying, which isn't normally how people do it. Usually they get into conventional fishing and then they, they pick up a fly rod. And then after they become fly anglers, then they, then they start fly tying. And I didn't, um, even though I grew up on a lake in Wisconsin, I did not fish. And so I started, I don't even know how to use a spinning reel or a bait caster that has never been in my wheelhouse. I am strictly just a fly angler. And I came even to that through the back door of fly tying. So I started tying flies that whole winter and I was just obsessed. And anyone too, who says that you're going to pick up fly tying because you want to save money buying flies. That's a bunch of bullshit too, because you're not, you're definitely not going to save a lot of money when you tie your own flies because you know, it's just like anything in fly, you know, every time you want to tie a fly, a different fly, you're going to need a different material. And those materials are not very inexpensive and the vices are expensive. In fact, at, at ICAST this last uh, two weeks ago, uh, a Renzetti vice that was a thousand dollars won best in category for fly fishing accessories. And I was like a thousand dollar vice. Wow. <laughs> it's evil. It's demonic. It's possession. It's addiction. It's dope. It's all of that. Once you get into it, it is just consumes you. You have to have this. You have to have that. You have to have this. You keep buying. You keep spending. You keep hiding. You keep hiding things from your spouse. You keep, you buy more and then you hide it. And then they look at your credit card bills. They're like, what is this? And it's like, oh, um, it, it was a car detailing I needed for the, or something, you know? I mean, it really does consume you. And then you, you see these incredible uh, commercial tires and they're and they're fly tying man caves and ladies caves and 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 girl caves i don't know i thought i'd call it a girl cave um but like you know you see all this stuff on the walls it's amazing but yeah you're right so anyways let's get into um let's you know all this great stuff we've talked about it's wonderful uh and and you know what i what i'm really impressed with jen with you is is that beautiful magazine you put out and the fact that you're passionate about about the history and 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 the and the legacy and and the journey it's all a journey now you have to use the right word journey and story like you know social media does um and it is really a journey of what ladies have been through but you know first off i want to get into the dynamics of the stigmas the you know discrimination i don't know if it's discrimination i think it's just you know macho male you know, I'm a male. I'm, 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 I am what I am. Okay. I'm a heterosexual male. I will be on record. Say that I do love women. I, I, I love attractive women. I like women as a whole. I, I'm, I'm, I'm possessed by women from a guide standpoint, because I've been guiding for 30 years and I still guide like crazy is the fact that they could learn so well and they, and they're so easy to teach and they absorb things. Whereas males, well, we're going to talk about that, but I don't want to get too deep in it, but First of all, uh, this has always been a very male-dominated sport. It's always been good old boy stuff, like private golf clubs. Um, you know, guys, it's always been guys getting away on a bromance trip, bro. We're going to get away. You know, no ladies, no kids, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and, and you know, despite the Dom Juliana Foundation, which we're going to get and we're going to talk about, you know, it's been private clubs. There's been no women's signs. Um, you know, I remember giving a talk to... Uh, a fly caching program to uh, I think it was Indianapolis Flycasters in in Indianapolis back in probably geez the early nineties I'm going to say when I lived in Indianapolis and it was a male only club and I was coming from D.C. where um, you know there's such an equilibrium of all all it was a rainbow coalition of every race every sex every gender every blah blah everything there was no discrimination there from a gender or sexual standpoint 
when I went to the Indianapolis Vikings and I said, I walked in, I said, are you serious? This is like a woman's only club. And they're like, yeah, oh yeah, this is for sure. Um, and I was like kind of shocked, uh, but I don't know. I think they let, I, I don't know if they exist, but I think they do let women in now because it's taken to legal stuff. But, um, you know, I remember when I was in England and I spent a lot of time uh, when I, I worked a little bit in London at the Ambassador Hotel in the food and beverage business. And I used to go to fish, um, you know, I got to fish the Houghton Club water. I didn't fish the Houghton Club water. I fished the water right next to it. And the Greyhound pub was there. And when I went to the Greyhound pound, Andy, Andy McDowell, McDonald said, you know, that's the Houghton Club water, man. And it's 14 miles of water for four, for like, uh, I don't know how many, like 21 members and Prince Charles was turned away when he applied because he was not a member. He had to get uh, abduct, inducted by a, a member of parliament. Uh, so you have to be put on the list at birth. Um, no women allowed. Um, you know, it was like taboo. And, and, you know, so you, you, you go and some never get into this club all their life, but, you know, I go to the Avon club water, um, in the officers club water. Cause my dad spent time in the, in the British army after the war, after world war two, when he was in the Polish army and they all fled to England after the war. Um, you know, I was wearing camouflage and a guy came up to me and, and gave me a tie and a tweed jacket. I had Orvis camo Orvis just camo just came out and I was wearing it. And, and a guy came up and gave me a tea, tweed jacket and collar. Mate, you bloody Yanks, you can't wear that. And then there were signs all over, no women allowed, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wow, this is like, this is like unbelievable. And Wellington boots and all that. And uh, the, and the water of Halford, the Grosvenor Hotel, the Duke of Northumberland, you know, you, there were signs in those rooms in those smoking parlors where the men sat and, and did the when I... It's called the one eye. The when I was in Tibet fishing on the river and with the Dalai Lama and my Sherpa said, you must cast there. Um, it, there were signs like, you know, everywhere women. So women have had a bad rap and, and they've never been taken seriously. Uh, it's a real shame. Have have you seen that when you, in your journey coming up and maybe not so much more in these days, but have you seen signs of it through your journey, Jen? Oh, of course. I mean, how can you not? Um, from, Tell us your, 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 your thoughts. Yeah. So from, uh, I'll give you a, some personal examples and then we'll move from there. And I, I do want to start this whole thing by saying that in the last, you know, 11 years that I've had my magazine or in the last, uh, I guess it's 10 years that I've had the magazine in the last, you know, 15, 18 years that I've been fishing, it, it has changed a lot. So today, the, the world today for women in fly is completely different than it was back then. But I'll give you some examples. Um, so I was asked maybe eight years ago or so to come and do uh, the casting and fly fishing for Cabela's up in West Bend, Wisconsin. And uh, it's outside of West Bend, but that's where I grew up, West Bend, Wisconsin. And uh, I was living in Chicago at the time. They had me come up. They wanted for Women's Day. They wanted me to teach all this. Well, I'd been corresponding with a woman from that Cabela's. And so I came up a couple of days ahead of that to just make sure I knew what I was doing and where I was supposed to be and, you know, expectations were met. And I brought my brother along, who at that time was an avid angler, but not a fly angler at all. And so we walk into the fly shop and there's a guy behind the counter and he's teaching a guy to tie a fly. Not very well, I will add, but he was teaching him to tie a fly. And I just sat back and watched and, and, you know, w waited until he was done. And, uh, 
And when he was done, he looked at my brother and he said, can I help you? And I said, um, no, actually, you can help me. And I could tell he was a little put off at that point. But he said, um, he said, OK, what? And I said, well, I've been corresponding with this woman and um, I haven't heard back from her on email. And he went to his computer screen and he pulled a piece of paper that was taped to the front of it off. And he said, oh, this must be for you. And he handed it to me. And I started reading over my correspondence from this, you know, with this woman, the email was printed off. And then on the bottom, she'd written something. And as I started to write it, he grabbed it back out of my hand and he said, wait, that's Cabela's property. You're not allowed to see it. And I said, uh, excuse me, it's my own personal email string. So yes, I am. And uh, so I started reading it and I said, I'm just really wondering like where I'm supposed to be and all that. And so we had this very short, brief conversation where he was not very nice. And as we walked out, he said to my brother, I don't really care if women fish. I just don't want them on my rivers. And Oh, my God. Yeah. And so, number one, first of all, I'm pretty sure if you're working in the fly shop at Cabela's, you don't own your own river, buddy. And second of all, you know, here you say this to my brother, who's not even a fly angler, to someone about me, who I am graciously volunteering my time to make this event at Cabela's successful. And oh so I immediately God. walked up to the front and I asked for the manager of the whole Cabela's and it happened to be a woman. Huh, go figure. And uh, <laughs> I told her what happened and she said, oh, I'm sorry. You know, he doesn't normally work in the fly shop. The guy from the fly shop didn't show up today because he's sick. So I pulled this guy who's normally in the warehouse who is a fly, you know, who, who likes to fly fish. And I put him in the shop and I said, you know what? You would have done yourself a better service to keep that guy out of the public eye in the warehouse where he belongs instead of bringing him in because you're doing more damage today than you would if you had no one in the fly shop, you know? And so, I mean, there you go. There's one really, you know, blatant example. And then another example and, um, you know, for many years, I mean, I've listened to women go on about how they've been mistreated in a fly shop. So two things. Number one, are women still mistreated in fly shops? Yes. Are they still mistreated in fly shops because they're women? No. They just don't realize that when you go in a fly shop, fly shop rats can be assholes, right? So it's like they treat men just as bad as they do women. It's just that women kind of feel like put off because we're not as, as, um, there's not as many of us in the industry. Right. And, and I think that women have uh, tend, and I've, I've started to, to stop this years ago. I started telling women when we get together, we're not going to bash men because I think that the vast majority of men in the industry and in the sport want to see more women in the sport. It's just the vocal minority who like that guy in the fly shop at Cabela's that still, you know, make things difficult. I will say that, you know, I think it's about education. So more than anything in a fly shop, I think that because women and not so much now, but women have been um, a foreign substance in a fly shop for so long that when they walk in, they don't know the people that are in there. The men don't know what to do with them. Right. So, um, for example, I was in a fly shop in Chicago the first time that I walked in and uh, and I walked in and the guy, uh, one of the guys acted like I had never walked in the shop. Like he didn't see me. Like, I don't know what to do with that. So I'm just not going to do anything about it. I don't know what and, to do with that. Yeah. And the other one was like, well, you're very hey. attractive, Jen. So I, I would come, I would hit on you right away, man. I'm well, just going to tell you right now. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and so, and the other man was like, Hey, came up to me and was like, are you here for something for your boyfriend? And I was like, no. And he's like, for your husband. And I'm like, no, I don't have one of those. For your dad? No, my dad doesn't fly fish. For your 
brother. And you can see the more that he went down the male influences that might be in my life that I might be buying something for, he just kept getting more perplexed and more perplexed and more perplexed. And so finally I said, no, I'm here for me. Um, I'm here looking for some flies for me. And oh, he probably, oh, he probably was startled. He he literally looked at me, turned around and walked away. And I was like, well, good thing I know what I'm doing, kind of. <laughs> oh my <laughs> you know? God. Yeah. And um, and it, but it's interesting, you know, I when I when that kind of stuff happens, I, you know, and I I said I've said this to numerous fly shops as men have asked me, you know, fly shop owners have asked me, like, how can we get you know, more women involved in the sport. And I'm like, I can send them. And how can we get more women involved in our shop? How can we get them to come in our doors? And I'm like, I can get them to come in your doors, but for them to actually feel comfortable here, there's a couple things you should do. First of all, this is how you should treat a woman when she walks in your fly shop. Woman walks in your fly shop. What you should do is say, Hey there, welcome in. Uh, just so you know, the women's waiters are on that wall. The men's waiters are on that wall. Uh, we have a special on on uh, outdoor gear right now. If you're, you know, fly fly rods are ten percent off over here because fly shops never because uh, fly rods never usually go more than that on clearance. You know, but whatever. Say just like here are the sales. Here's the women's stuff. Here's the men's stuff. I'll be back here behind the counter if you need me. Come get me. The same way that you would treat a man walking in is the same way that you should treat a woman walking in. That says to me, there's no mansplaining. He's not going to try to walk me around the store and tell me what a fly rod is. He is not going to assume that I'm there for myself, for the man in my life. And he doesn't know if I'm there for the, you know, for myself. At that point, a woman then can make her own decisions and be like, Hey, you know what? I'm new here. I don't know what or I'm the, doing. Or the woman in your life, you know, who gives a flying fuck about what, you know, it doesn't really matter. It should not, this, this is where we're piercing through that. We're making progress. But first of all, when you, when you're talking about fly shops and God, I love fly shops, but you know, most of the guys that are hired in there are just are in drone introverts that like fish all the time. These people, yeah. you're you're hiring guys. You're hiring people that want to be in your fly shop so they can get your discount to get the shit, okay? And they're <laughs> drones that that are introverted people that like Theodore Gordon that live in a van down by the river and they don't really have big personalities. And plus, the labor market today is brutal. So trying to find help is is next to non-existent. Okay, you're gonna find a kid that's possessed by fly fishing. He doesn't. He is probably can't get a girlfriend uh, because he fishes too much. So he doesn't know what to do with women when they walk in. Um, so you're like a foreign object. You're like a you're like an extraterrestrial walking into a fly shop. That's one thing. But you know, it is. It, you know, you you. I saw it when I was growing up. I I I, I saw women get. I'm like who the hell what are you doing in this fly shop i mean i saw it that brutally bad today it has changed absolutely um and and those stories you said is absolutely but you know today it's about the cha-ching cha-ching the money mm-hmm. we're going to get into that so yeah. you now see very attractive ladies in fly fishing catalogs you could tell you know they're not really fly fishing people but you could sometimes see it oh you see it a lot on Instagram. we're going to talk about social media we're going to get into this, you know, you know, first of all, it was that, you know, I remember, I remember uh, Hardy. Yes. The one that you were, rep- they had a girl, a redheaded girl representing, she was like this beautiful Irish or Scottish girl, redhead casting with welly boots on. And, and, you know, it was just look very, you know, Anglophile. It was, you know, somewhere with tweed and so we 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 get them as props as mannequins because mm-hmm. they sell. We're gonna get we're gonna now we got the men. We got all the men hooked. 
So now we're going to get women hooked. So how do we get women hooked? So we 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 um, we patronize them and, and we put them into magazines and we put all different genders. Now we're very gender equally uh, equal representation. And so it's it's getting to the point now where it's it's never been better for women. So if you're a woman fly fisher, it's a great time to be a woman fly fisher because the 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 abolitionist the the uh, the um, the suffragette period is over. Okay, we you, women have suffered a lot in fly fishing to get to any level of recognition. You could ask Joan Wolf. You could ask the things that she went to in New Jersey, and we're going to talk about that. But today, it's it's money, and and it's now putting women on a pedestal. But sometimes it's putting women on a pedestal in 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 derogatory ways. And you and you see, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm a heterosexual male. I love looking at attractive women. I, I'm I'm very, you know, that's my life. But you now you're seeing you know you know the g-string thing, the g-strings in, in the salt water and and the you know the the poses and you know where what what is that doing to women in fishing in general? What is it doing? Um, is it taking them to the next level or is it demeaning them? To, you know what what's your thoughts on that whole thing, uh, Jen? Yeah. So um, yeah, that's a big social media has been great for women in the sport because women have been able to see themselves on the river and other women fly fishing. So they think that that's something that they want to do and they get into the, into the sport, but it's also been detrimental, right? I mean, like anything, um, you know, I, I, I go back and forth on the whole thing with the influencers and social media. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big giant chaotic ball at this point. And mess, mess. It, it's, a, it's a terrible mess. Yeah. You know, I feel like, you know, I don't have anything against a woman who wants to fish in a bikini top, you know, out there, yeah. you know, and if she wants hey, to, I have no problem. On, yeah. If she wants to post that online, that's up to her, but she has to be, she has to realize a couple things. Number one, she's going to get a lot of cat calls that maybe she doesn't appreciate. So, you know, if, if you're not looking for cat calls, then why are you posting that? And number two, if that's how you're going to fish and you're fishing in that way, then, and you're doing it just for likes. And specifically, I can think of someone, um, on YouTube who has a YouTube channel who fishes in, in, uh, the South in saltwater and is always wearing a G string and bending over for the camera and has a million followers, as you'd expect her too. Um, nobody's, you know, there are very few people that are watching her for her fishing skills and they're literally watching her because it's like soft porn. And, you know, yeah. and if that's the way you want to make your money. Yeah. That's the way you want to make your money. That's fine. I get that. It's the same as if you want to, you know, be a dancer or whatever, but don't try and pretend that you're not doing that just for the sake of likes and money. Then don't yeah. tell me that you're there. You're, you're there for women and to get more women and children involved and not to make money because it's a bunch of bullshit and people see through that. Right. And so, like I said, I, you know, and then there, you can also talk about, and so I have no respect for that, to be real honest, I have no respect for people who will lie about what their true intentions are in fishing at uh, the same way that it's very difficult to watch, you know, really, uh, you know, women holding up giant fish that, are brand new to fishing and probably have never caught that themselves. I mean, and, and they know who they are and I'm not going to stand in judgment of them, but what I will say about um, social media, specifically your Instagram, your Facebook, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I've struggled with this for a long time and I get this question a lot because as a woman, a legit woman in the space, someone who has, you know, never intended to get into the industry, but just picked up fly for the love of fly. And then the industry came afterwards. Um, 
you know, there are a lot of people out there right now that want to make a buck or get free gear on social media. And so they will hold a fish that was caught by somebody else or they'll, you know, put up a seductive picture or whatever. And, um, and it used to drive me crazy. And I used to be like on a wild witch hunt to find those who were legitimate and those weren't. And, and I will say that done my magazine has been, has been responsible for creating some monsters in the space as well. Right. And we can talk about that later, but um, you know, the more that I've watched it over the last 10 years, a social media monster that is, um, you know, I'm less apt to go on a witch hunt and more apt to watch wh- who's following them. And so as I, you know, when I've started talking to the younger generations, the girls in the sport, girls who are just getting into the sport, and I'm talking young girls, eight years old, six, you know, eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 14 years old, um, you know, when I asked them how they first found out about fly fishing 10 years ago, they were watching someone like April Voki, who's incredible, right? And now they, they watch people who are more influencers and less fishing, right? And so to me, that demographic who I used to be, you know, I used to say like, no, I, you know, that I, they're illegitimate in the field and, and I'm not going to follow them. You know, I got to thinking about it and I got to thinking about how If that influencer, let's just say that that influencer is completely illegitimate, completely illegitimate. She's only caught one fish in her life. The rest of them are caught by her boyfriend or her husband and who's a photographer and she holds them and he takes a guide. Yeah, or a guide, right? And, damn guides. Yeah, exactly. Damn guides. Um, but let's just say that, you know, that photo was taken. Specifically, she's got a big following, but she really doesn't really know what she's doing. And I've seen some of these at iCast who get in there or at fly shows who get on the casting pond. And you'd think that they'd be great casters because they look like they're great fishermen and they can't even double haul. They've never even heard of what it is, right? And so, but but then I got to thinking about it and I'm like, if this influencer who is 99.9% illegitimate in the field has gotten another girl or woman into the, into the field, then I have to be behind her because as a woman, my main goal in fly fishing is to get more women involved in the sport. And so if this woman, even if she's not legitimate and I can see it from the top looking down is getting those who are from the bottom looking up into the sport, then guess what? I'm behind her. So will I encourage her? in a direct message to her to, you know, be more legitimate in this space? Absolutely. Will I, will I encourage her as a direct message to work on her skills or only give a one-on-one class if she's asked to speak because she's not at a level to give a two-on-one class? Absolutely. But I would never, ever do that on the main pages where other people can see it, or I would never, and you can, and you can see what I've posted and what our magazine posts. We never, We'll, we'll, we'll cut someone down, um, on the main page, you know, even if we think that they're a thousand percent not legitimate in the space, that yeah. doesn't do anyone any That's good. That's a good way of putting it. You reap what you sow, right? So if you want to do it, God bless you, do it. You're it's going to come back and haunt you. I don't know, you know, so something, you know, the bottom line is, in my opinion, uh, women have gone through the suffragette period and now it's wide open. You could do whatever the hell you want to do. You could yep. be, you know, another pretty face. You could get decked out in Patagonia clothes. You could go out and put your G-string on. You could, you could do, you could be a guide. You could be, you know, uh, you could do whatever you want. And and you know, being a guide that's been guiding for 30 years, um, you know, and and being a heterosexual male, 
You know, and you, you see a hot looking woman and you say, wow, she's hot. Oh, I got this really hot lady in my boat. You know, men are like little boys, man. They get excited. And guys are guys are 10 times little boys. That's what we are. We're all little boys that never grow up. Okay. That's just the way we are. You know, and and but then you got like the older, like, and I'm and I'm getting a little old, and uh, you got this male chauvinistic stigma. Like, like, I don't have no kids in my boat, no women in my boat, like the guy in that store that that mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I don't know where it's brought. I think it's brought up from an older generation of grandfather to grandfather to grandfather to grandfather to father that, you know, women, women, they're supposed to be home in the kitchen and, and making babies. And that's what they should be doing. They shouldn't be fly fishing. Fly fishing is for men. That's it's, it's the gig, you know, and you take a lady fly fishing, you give her, give her your old rubber waders and you give her your hand-me-down tackle and you know, you always see it. I still see it. I saw it on the river the other day. I saw a guy. He was decked out and everything, Orvis to Sims to Patagonia down, and his wife was tagging along, or his significant other, or his whatever, is tagging along in a, with a spinning rod with a piece of junk waders, rubber waders, uh, and it's like I felt like stopping and saying, you know, could you please outfit this lady a little bit, make you know, she give her a little cred. It was like, you know, well, I'm not going to get her anything because she, you know, she's going to dump it, throw it out the next day and she ain't going to appreciate it because that's all she wants to do is bake, bake cakes in the kitchen, you know, and that's the mentality that we have. And, uh, and then there's the other mentality that uh, women that are into, into outdoor sports are, are of a certain sexual orientation. You know, they're, they could be rough people. And, you know, it's like, we have so many goddamn stigmas mm-hmm. that we need to, but we just got to see people as people get the color thing out of our head, get the gender thing out of our head. And, and just, if they're into it, they want to learn. There, there's a calling. Look at, look at all the famous lady fly fishers. From down the centuries, there was a calling to those people that their grandfather, their mother, their father, their uncle, their their whatever got them addicted at a young age. And, and sex was not part of the orientation here, whether you're male or female. It was it was I, I am a human being that has a mind. We are the cognito ergo soon thinking women's and man's podcast. And we have a mind because we we love the process. We love the intricacy. We love the details. We love the the beauty of it, the, the science, the nature. And, and that's a mind, whether you're ma- with the left side of the brain or the right side of the brain says you're male or female, or you should be fish fitting this role, or you need to look pretty when you get on the river or not pretty. And, you know, all that stuff that's been going on. So um, bottom line, there's a strong legacy. We're going to talk about it. Um, and, and for me as a guide, and I know tons of guys out there, uh, that me as a guide, I welcome women in my boat. I have so many women clients that I've taught for 30 years that are now the best fly casters that I've ever seen, the best spay casters I've ever seen. Uh, you know, a young lady, I had a lacrosse girl, she was 13, 14 years old. Uh, she was, um, shooting i mean she was throwing uh single spays and double spays with minimal instruction because she knows how to orient two hands with that um so you know there's so many great things that women bring to the table they bring a, a thought process they bring a detail process they they they're easy to learn they're easy to teach they have gentleness men don't have the gentleness 
Um, the, all that stuff that's going on there in the process of fly fishing, a woman translates to that. Um, so there you go with that. Um, uh, we're going to end all this discussion here because I think we 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 summed it up perfectly. Uh, the patience, the learning that that ladies bring to this sport is incredible. Jen, you want to end this before we get into the history? Yeah, so I think I'll say two things. Um, two things have to change or two things are in the process of changing that are making things better for women in the sport. Um, the one that's not making things better for women in the sport would be where that that stigma of that old man who doesn't like women in the, you know, uh, everybody always says, I guess I'll say it this way. Everybody always says that, like, we're just waiting for the old men to die off so that things can change. And then, you know, once those old cr crotchety old uh, white men die off in the sport, then that'll change fly fishing. Unfortunately, I think that those old crotchety old white men are breeding a whole new group of old crotchety old white men, right? So wait, wait, you're talking to my customers. Yeah, exactly. So that continues. And I think that the only way that it's going to change is uh, where when men their peers step up and say, dude, that's not, that's not cool. Don't do that anymore. Dude, what are you talking about? Don't talk to her like that. Why are you treating her like that? Hey, dude, you know what? You know, when you're in your man cave and you're with your buddies and you're saying, well, all those women out on the river, they're just, you know, changing the sport of fly fishing, you know, and it's not for the good. I, you know, someone needs to stand up. Their peers need to stand up and say, you know, yo, man, don't talk like that. That's not cool. You know, we want more people in this sport. Why wouldn't you want women in the sport? And, and it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, I think that it's the vocal minority who make the loudest noise. And so I, we have to have that, that, that majority who don't speak up, start to speak up and then things will change in rapid succession. Amen. 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 Let's get more ladies on the river. Um, and that note, we're going to take a break and uh, we are going to be back talking about the history and the lore and uh, everything that's going on with our wonderful guest, Jen Ripple in the Ladies Legacy of Fly Fishing. Uh, stay tuned. I've had an emotional attachment to Orvis since I was a little boy growing up in the Niagara frontier with my paper route and with my hard-earned money, I saved up my money to buy one of the first Orvis graphite rods that came out. To this day and over the decades, I still collect their Orvis graphite rods like the Trico, the Spring Creek, the Far and Fine, the Beaver, and I still fish them. I was an Orvis pro for 20 years in my guiding career that I still guide today. And during that time, they asked me to write a book for Orvis called The Orvis Pocket Guide to Great Lake Salmon and Steelhead. Um, it's an amazing uh, rod, the new Helios. And when they first sent me the blanks for the Helios, uh, I asked them, where are they going with this rod and what do you want to do with it? And they basically said to build the finest graphite rod that is made. And they sure did. Today's Helios 3, the D is the faster tip flex rod. And the F version is the more moderate rod, the mid-flex. If you want the finest fly rod to be casted today, get the Helios 3. I use it every day and I will continue to use it. Able Reels have been the pinnacle of real technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel 
aerospace engineer, started the company in California. Their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their real systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at able reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship, another USA made company that gives each reel a hand touch and their boutique made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, able reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. I can't say enough superlatives about a company like Patagonia. Their designs, their style, their function, um, their quality, everything they do is amazing for the mountain climber, for the skier, for the surfer, for the fly fisher. I've been a Patagonia pro for over 30 years and I've lived their clothing lifestyle. Practically every piece of clothing I have is Patagonia. My whole family has absorbed their lifestyle and my son, Peter, who was so enamored with the Patagonia lifestyle, worked in their Patagonia corporate store in Washington, D.C. Yvonne Chouinard is an avid spaycaster, an Atlantic salmon, of uh, aficionado, steelheader. He started and pioneered a Tenkara movement here in, in the North, North America. And he embodies the company and he's given so much of this company to the earth and to the public. When you buy Patagonia, you give back to the planet. And this summer I've been really enjoying their lightweight waders in this hot weather we've had. And I warned their waders from Iceland to Tierra del Fuego. Please give back to the earth, buy Patagonia, and you will never, ever for, forget the quality of this product. We are back talking the ladies' legacy in fly fishing for trout and Atlantic salmon and everything in this wonderful world that we live in. And um, we have a wonderful guest, Jen Ripple, the editor of Dunn Magazine and, and a woman that has been a pioneer in in fly fishing for ladies uh, for such a long time. And and you know what's really amazing is she's uh, she's really studied the craft and what women have done and and her programs that she does at fly fishing shows on, on ladies. Ladies and fly fishing are just dynamic, and we are so lucky to have her today. Uh, we're going to start off. We just talked about, you know, the dynamics, the stigmas, the 
the the misconceptions, the prejudice, the discrimination of of that the suffragette movement and fly fishing that ladies have gone through and still go through today, uh, in in very uh you know old white grumpy dude white world that we just tend to kind of scoff at at ladies and being in fly fishing, but that has changed a lot and and ladies have done it by their own stamina and their own moxie and their fortitude and have taken their wisdom and there's so many that we're going to talk about starting in our journey right now, but. Uh, it all starts off with um, really the first lady of fly fishing, Dom Juliana Berners, the treatise of fishing with an angle. Um, you know, who who she was, you know, what she written. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting that we would probably be kind of somebody would eventually have, have have sort of invented it and where she stands, whether she was real. Some people say she was just this fictitious person that was flirted like Theodore Gordon was a fictitious person. He was not, he was real, but you know, he wasn't that important in the development of fly fishing. It was really the, the green heart sticks in Scotland, the, the spay guys. And these guys were fishing with these long two handed rods. So spay, a trout fishing, fly fishing, as a whole started with two handed long sticks that were like big, huge bamboo poles that you wheeled with, with, with both hands and you dapped flies on the water and flies made of horse hair. And, 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 but she had actually first fly plates that with, with real ingredients, with real feathers, exotic feathers that she's got in her hand on. And I'm just going to start off and then I'm going to let Jen take over. Uh, but you know, I had a, I had a little, little chap, area in my uh, brown trout atlantic salmon nexus book and and there was a little section called women power and the salmo driven dom and it was about dom juliana burner and i'm just going to use a quote out of there as credited with the first book of fly fishing dom juliana burners in 1495 of the 15th century wrote the treatise of fishing fishing in the old english with an angle in the book of saint albans a series of eight books dealing with hawks hunting heralding in her book she can be credited with being the first angler to identify leaders made from horsehair and how to dye them in various hues from green to brown to yellow based on the season and watercolor juliana was the first introspective salmo observer when i say salmo in that time on the river avon was brown trout and atlantic salmon they are salmo order observer identified to come along and realize the effectiveness of stealth presentations to her query was the elusive and cunning brown trout and atlantic salmon her classroom was the placid spring creek style waters of the pastoral hampshire country of england which demanded amazing attention to stealth and detail the atlantic salmon and these waters were even more selective, reflective, as their window of vision was calm and ever possible opportunity to be ultra picky was a function here of their habitat. Juliana's first dedicated coloring of horsehairs by season shows her experience with the selective nature of Selma. She also learned that to discern Salmo species specific behaviors, which her theories still apply today. She quoted the Salma, this is Dom Juliana's quote, the salmon is not bite on the bottom, but at the float. You may sometimes take him, but it happens very seldom. And with an artificial fly when he is leaping in the same way as you take trout or grayling. We shall speak next of the trout because he is a very dainty fish and also a very greedy biter. Um, here's my author's note. First identification of the bipolar behavioral split behavior so common for Salmo, especially Atlantic salmon. Okay, back to her quote. He is in season from March to Miklamas. 
He is found on clean gravel bottom in a running stream. You may angle for him at all times with a running or lying round line, except in leaping time when you use an artificial fly. So here we go. This is this is this is a 1495, a detailed uh by the head nun nunneris, the, the headmaster nunnery, Adam Juliana, to be writing such introspective selectivity type stuff. Totally blew me away. Um, your thoughts, uh, Jen, and your thoughts on Dom Juliana Berners? Yeah. So, um, first of all, here's a, and I think it it uh, should be noted that this is not a giant book, right? So here are two different uh, versions of it. Uh, very small books. Um, uh, it's interesting to hear you you pronounce it because I've always thought it was the treatise of fishing with an angle. So treatise, treatise, treatise. Who you know? Yeah, and I, I, I'm yeah. from Cornwall, and we call it treatise. You must be yeah, from yeah. Uh, from Hampshire, Hampshire, higher. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah right. but if you look at this, you know, for everything that she covered in this tiny book, which is the first book, of, I, I I believe is the first book of um, fly fishing that was written by a woman uh, in the 15th century, uh, published in, uh, I think, written in, 19, in 1495, published in 1496. Um, you know, so when I first found her, I started doing this, I, I guess I should start, I started doing this whole history lesson and all of this in-depth research because when I first got into fly fishing, I didn't see any other women on the, on the water and I didn't know any other women in the sport. I knew that there was one woman that, that came to the fly shop, Colton Bay in Michigan, named Dr. Pam Davis. But other than that, you know, I didn't know of any other ones. And so I started doing this history lesson because I wanted to know if I had a foundation to be in the fly shop and if I had a foundation to be in the river. And so um, when I found this, you know, I, I, I was like, oh, wow, the tree ties fishing with an angle and it's by a nun of noble birth. So, I mean, that makes sense, right? Because in order to fish in those days, it wasn't like there was public land. You had to be of noble birth in order to even own land that you could fish on. So it makes sense that she was of noble birth. And I thought maybe she wrote this book because, well, she liked to fish and she was a nun. So she was bored because she didn't have anything else to do but go to church. And if I were uh, a nun and only had to go to church, I would want to do other things as well. <laughs> you, <wild. laughs> you know, um, but that's not exactly why she wrote this book. And I mean, um, like you said, that there are a lot of other books that she's written um, a book on hawking, which does give her credit and is a much more well-known book than the, the tree ties. But, um, but I, you know, when I started doing a little research into why she wrote the book, it's very interesting um, because she was a nun back in the day uh, in order for you to do an activity, it had to be sanctioned by the church. And in order for it to be sanctioned by the church, there had to be a document that the priest could bless. And this right here is that document. And so, wow. yeah, isn't that interesting? I did not know that. And that is beautiful information. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So yeah. And so, but, but what's Being so a Catholic boy persecuted by guilt. That is good <laughs> to know. I wonder if I could get the church to bless my books. I got it. <laughs> yeah, maybe you never know. Right. God um, bless. But, but what's interesting is she didn't just write this. Um, she is like something that the priest could bless. She wrote it as a, something that people would then that would last right and so that people would go around and they would read and they would learn and they would become more astute at this art of 
fly fishing. And like you said, it's really, really, really complete. I mean, in, to be so small and be so complete, I mean, it talks mm-hmm. about how to dye hair, like you talked about, how to dye the horse hair for different water conditions. So dark diet dark if your water is stained, dye it, you know, leave it light if it's if it's clear water. I mean, she talks about how to make a rod and how to tie uh, leaders and, you know, how to make a hook. And, you know, it's called the tree ties of fishing with an angle. And a lot of people don't understand what she refers to when she talks about the angle. Do you know what the angle refers to? Yes, I do. What does it refer to? Hook. That's right. The hook. And so do you know the difference then between, because as a woman angler, you know, most people are like, well, what do you want to be called? Do you want to be called a fly fisherwoman, a fly fisherman woman? What do you want to be called? And so when I thought about that, first of all, I don't want to be called a fly fisher woman, man, whatever. I don't know. They've made up all kinds of names and that's really difficult to say. Um, But when I got to thinking about what the difference between fishing a fisherman and an angler is an angler will only use a hook, whereas a fisherman will use a net, uh, a spear, a hook, uh, whatever. Right? Well, you're in West Virginia. You dynamite, sister. You put That's some. Right. You pour oh, damn oil in that creek. They just stocked it, and man, you get them Palomino trout coming up. Goddamn! I tell you <laughs> what, that's a fisherman. Don't give me that rod shit. Go ahead. That's right. Right. So when so then becomes, my Southern boys, <laughs> it becomes easy to know what to call you then, because technically speaking, those of us who only fish flies are called fly anglers because we only use a hook. Yes. And that's gender neutral. So you can say fly angler. It's easier to say. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a woman or whatever it is that you are these days. And, um, you know, so there you go, Fly Angler. But the first book, when I found this, I was like, wow, yeah. And I I do also, you know, you talked about the controversy as well, whether she was real or whether it was actually written by a a man and with the name Dame Juliana Berners. However, she's given full credit for her book on Hawking. And second of all, back, if you think about the 15th century, if a man, even to this day, if a man actually wrote a book, would he give credit to a woman? Probably yeah. not. Well, maybe yeah. in today's day and age. Good I don't point. Know. But yes. yeah, but I'm sure it is. And Damn it talks in here about how, um, which I don't think of as fishing, as fly fishing, but interesting as well. How she talks about how to take maggots and bake them in bread to keep them warm and then like put them under your skirt to keep them, you know, uh, live, you know, like stick the maggots in the bread after you bake it and keep the bread warm under your skirt. And I'm pretty sure back in the 15th century, men weren't wearing skirts. So probably is pretty clear that it was written by a woman and her name was Dame Juliana Berners. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's amazing um, what, how this all started back then. And, you know, a lot of it was, um, you know, nuns have a lot of free time. Okay. You could only pray so much and then you can only beat little Polish kids by their, take them by their head, their nails and smack their knuckles with rulers and grab them by the ears. Like my nuns did in my, uh, Catholic school. It was like, my Catholic school is sort of like a, a sub camp, I think for a concentration camp or something, because they just beat the piss out of us, man. And, and I'd come home and if, if the nuns beat me, then my parents might get the strap out. Why did the nun beat you? That means I'm going to give you a slap on the butt because the nuns beat. So the nuns called, you know, they call up your son was a bad boy. So you get a beating at home. Uh, no, I know it's not the way it is today. But I'm just telling you, that's the way it was back then. And those nuns, and I love nuns, and I'm Catholic, and I am I still go to church, and I'm guilt-ridden, and I'm a good Catholic boy. But um, they had a lot of free time. But 
one of the main reasons she wrote the book also was it was a great way of worshiping nature in the in the true uh, I think it was St. Francis Assisi or St. Francis of uh, something. It was the nature Francis that had birds eating out of his hand. And it was a good way to give reverence to God by being out in the outdoors and a pastime where you worship nature, you observe nature. And the nuns would do that with their long poles and they would dap the water. They did a lot of dapping back then. And uh, so, you know, th- that was part of it. And, in you know, in the last passage, uh, I wrote in my Nexus book is that Berners already understood the difference between nymphing, which was a ground line, she says, and the dry line opportunities during a hatch. You know, selectivity, well, the subject of one of my books, the passion of my previous books was already driving force behind in the 14. She was already doing that back then, direct result of enigmatic and difficult angling situations of brown trout and Atlantic salmon that she was already observing. So those fish as they transformed the Catskills with Gordon, when they, you know, when fly fishing came to the, to, to, to the new world and when the brown trout came to the Catskills, it changed the whole way we fly fished. I mean, you had a more uh, selective fish, a more introspective fish that was not as gullible as the brook trout were. You couldn't just put a couple gaudy flies on, a couple wet flies and swung them. They, they'd come to the surface and scoff at your flies. That brown trout, and then we talked about in my Catskill series, four-part series, changed the way we fish. That that brown trout was there, the same brown trout, the same Atlantic salmon that Berners was fishing for, changed that she had to go to really selective measures to, to absorb this fish. And she couldn't just use the same line. She had to think a little bit. Why were they refusing my line at this time of year when the water was clear? And, you know, so Maxima and... And all you companies out there, Varivas, that are dying your lines now and changing your day, baby, this, give it to this girl, this girl back in, in, in the fourth, 1500s, 1400s, she was doing it. And we got to give her the, you got to give her some street cred for that one. So um, that is, that's pretty much all I got on, on Dom Julian. Do you have anything else on, on the, on the Dom, Miss uh, Jen? I don't, except to say that, you know, 150 years later, one of the greatest books in fly fishing that was ever written was written, The Complete Angler. And we would not have The Complete Angler, which is this book right here. We would not have this book, one of the most famous books in fly fishing, if it wasn't for the treatise of fishing with an angle, because he gives credit to Dame Juliana's treatise in order to write The Complete Angler. Amen. You're absolutely right on that one. Okay, now we're going to go down a list. Let's talk about the Royals. Um, let's, you know, the Royals, uh, we, it's not, what's the, Lord is the name of the group, I think, and they have a song called Royals, and it's just a bunch of people clapping and blah, blah, blah. But anyways, um, so, you know, the, the the royal family has always been, you know, they, they've had Balmoral, their castle. I've, I've been to Balmoral in, in Northern Scotland. Um, it's a beautiful place. I, I didn't really go inside it because I'm not loyal. I'm not royalty. I'm Polish royalty. We come from a little, small, little, little, little place, a village. But um, that's that's my family. But I'm not. So we're, we're peasant royalty. But anyways, um, so you know the ball morale on the River D. Um, you know it was it was a place where they had summer vacations. Uh, Queen Victoria, um, you know, she was a a, a a fly fisher. Queen Elizabeth became a fly fisher. Um, Princess Diana was a fly fisher uh, with Prince Charles. Prince Charles is an avid fly fisher. He still is to this day. He's the head of the Atlantic Salmon Trust 
Um, he's the president, I still think, or the chief CEO. Um, he's done so much for the restoration of Atlantic salmon, which is is having rough time in UK, all around Northern Europe, um, in, in many locations. Uh, he still fishes. I actually saw Prince Charles fishing uh, when I was in England, fishing the River Test when I was staying at a bed and breakfast. Uh, Orvis had a bed and breakfast near the with near the uh, Mountbatten Estate, uh, the, um, the Broadlands, and uh, I saw a bunch of like Secret Service people and stuff were escorting a gentleman, and he was standing on the lawn. I have a picture of that whole troupe, and and somebody said that was Prince Charles fishing there at Balmoral. Uh, when I was fishing on the test um, at the Broadlands, uh, not Balmoral, excuse me, at the at the at the at the Broadlands, and uh, so they've done so much for fly fishing. And um, Maria Ustonson uh, sounds like a good uh, Nordic woman. She was Queen Victoria's appointed rod maker, and uh, Queen Elizabeth loved to fish, and all these royals did. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your uh, research on these uh, people. Yeah, so Maria Ustensen, um, she was in the 1800s. She actually was a daughter-in-law of Onesimus Ustensen. And so um, Ustensen's was the, you know, it's like a London-based fishing tackle maker, a very famous one called Ustensen's. And um, some of the earliest fishing products that were made in the UK were made by Ustensen's. And and the reels that, uh, they were very famous for the reels and the reels that were made by Onesius Ustensen are highly desirable by collectors. If you if you are an avid collector, you want one of these in your repertoire. And um, but an interesting note that although they're marked by Ustensen, they were actually made by Maria. And Maria was married to um, Onesimus's third son. His name was Charles. Um, he happened to take over his dad's business in 1815. And then shortly after that, he died. So they were not married for very long. But as soon as they got, he took over the business, they got married, and then he died. And so Maria was kind of on her own, but she was very entrenched in this tackle manufacturers, um, this company. And so after her husband died, she actually went to work at making reels and at Eustonson's, Eustonson's, sorry. And, um, you know, under her, it's under her work that Eustonson's received the royal warrant um, and from three successive monarchs to, to, be, um, to be thorough. And it started with King George the fourth. And so King George the fourth gave her the royal warrant and she started in 19, uh, in 1837. She's the reels that were marked Ustensen's, which we, um, have known to, which I just said were actually made not by Onesimus, but or by Charles, but were made by Maria in 1837. Those reels that were marked Ustensen's then became, um, they were marked as so Queen Victoria took it and they were the maker to the queen. So at that point, those reels were now made, now marked marker to the queen and a maker to the queen. And it's a very interesting thing because, you know, again, as we talk about in the past and we talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, as we talk about women who have not gotten the credit that they deserved for what they've done, um, you know, they try to take away, uh, 
Dame Juliana Burgers and create and say that she was a man or didn't exist. And then we see Ustensons, you know, these reels that are so sought after and who have had the royal warrant for three successive monarchs were actually made by a woman. But most people just assume that they were made by Anismus or by Charles and they weren't. And then we also assume that Ustensons uh, got the royal warrants because of the work that Anismus did. And it wasn't, it was because of Maria's work. And so we wouldn't have all of that history and the, and those collectors wouldn't be able to collect those iconic reels if it wasn't for the, the making and the craftsmanship that Maria herself had. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. Um, so we go to, um, we go to Elizabeth Benjamin, credited with the first natural attractor patterns. Tell us. Yeah, you know, when we think about up until this time, people were just tying attractor, you know, attractor flies. So red, crimson red on the end to get the fish's attention, and then maybe the fish would bite. But uh, Elizabeth Benjamin, uh, around the 1850s, 1860s, she lived in Ralston, Pennsylvania. And Ralston, Pennsylvania was famous for its brook trout. Many anglers would come there from all over the world, specifically England, to fish for these these brook trout, which were very big. But at that time, anglers were coming and they were fishing with really fancy flies. Right. So they would come with what they'd already always fished. And these were these beautifully tied flies, really fancy track, uh, you know, just attractor patterns. But the fish were really, really finicky. And so I love Elizabeth's story because she lived there and she fished. But she noticed that even though people would flock from all over the place to fish in this little area, the only one who was really ever successful on a regular basis was the local tavern owner. And so she did what any respectable woman would do. One day when he she saw him leaving for the river, she snuck behind him and she peered through the reeds to see what he was doing. And she realized that he would scoop up, like look at the surface of the water, scoop up the flies and he'd look at them. And then he'd open his fly box and he would choose a fly. And she realized that he was choosing one in a tractor pattern that was the same color. So then she oh, went that's back pretty home. Amazing. Yeah, she went back home that day and she got her husband and her son to help her make like a a butterfly net. And they went down that night and they scooped up all the bugs and she brought them back into her house and she tied flies that looked like the bugs that they had found. And so her flies then, they started to catch fish, right? Her husband, her, her son, they started to catch all these fish and all these, um, brook trout of size and so she literally had people that were like what are you catching those on right because that's what we like to say when someone catches a fly we're like what did you catch that on because we want to know we want to catch it too and so her flies looked unlike the fancy flies that everyone was fishing and so she started providing flies and to uh, that looked like the bugs in her area to other local fly anglers anglers that would come in and so i believe that she should have the credit for the first natural attractor patterns wonderful wonderful this is wonderful stuff listeners i mean we're we're covering this subject and we've got so much more to cover but i i really don't think anybody's really dived into this um and and um we pride ourselves at Howard waters podcast for being books on tape and and so much to learn. And I, I'm truly fascinated by all the stuff coming from Jen and, and so much more to come. Uh, Sarah Jane McBride. Mm-hmm. She was an author, considered the first American papers of any consequence on subject of aquatic incest for the angler's point of view, discovered that water temperatures affect bug hatches. Tell us a little bit about her. 
Sure, you just took away all of my 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 uh, thunder here. <laughs> That's what she's known for, right? So Sarah Jane McBride, she's she's a New Yorker. She lived around the 1876s, 1875, somewhere around there. Her father was a professional fly tire and a very prominent angler in New York. And uh, she fished with her father from the time that she was a young child. Uh, we kind of talked about how uh, at that, you know, back in those days, women would you know, fathers would take, if they only had daughters or even if they had sons, they'd take them out and they'd teach them to fish, right? They needed to provide food for their family. And with her dad being a prominent professional fly tire and prominent angler, he wanted to, he naturally taught his children to fish and she was one of them. And so um, at this time, still fancy flies were all the rage. And so um, what she did is really interesting. You know, back in the day in the 1800s, when you were a woman, you would finish school and then you would do what any respectable woman would do. You would get married, you would have a million children, and then you would just be taking care of your house. And that is not at all what she did, much to the dismay of her family. After she finished school, she spent a year studying the home waters of New York, and so which was very unusual for women back then, right? So women were supposed to be indoor women. They were supposed to um, cooking, not cleaning. to be what? Cooking, cleaning. Cooking, cleaning. Yes, exactly. Making I mean, you know, babies. They could maybe go to school to be a teacher, but other than that, no, 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 we didn't do anything that would be considered outdoors. And so she literally became a self-taught entomologist. And if you think about what women back in the day were supposed to be doing, this was about as far away as you could get, right? She was studying bugs. But she she did she was really influential in that because of her study for the la for that year, she wrote a three-part series called The Metaphysics of Fly Fishing. And it was published in Forest and Stream magazine in 1876, which wow. is unheard of that a woman would have been published in an outdoor journal like that. And then she wrote Entomology for Fly Fishers in Rod and Gun in 1877. So she was being published in all these really incredible places. Um, she discovered, like you said, today we take out our thermometers and we measure the temperature of the water because we know that bug catches will, are going to occur around, you know, 46 degrees or so. But we attribute that, that action that we do to Sarah Jane McBride. Her papers are considered the first American papers of any consequence on the subject of aquatic insects as they pertain to um, an angler's point of view. And she literally discovered that water temperatures affect bug hatches. And today that seems like a no-brainer, right? Well, it gets to this degree and bugs just start hatching. But no one had discovered that back in the day. So the next time that you actually pull out your thermometer to test the water, you can attribute it to Sarah Jane McBride who discovered that. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yeah. And right up there with Preston Jennings and Lewis Reed and all the, all the bug hatch matchers back then in the Catskills and the Catskills, you know, we did the four part series on, on, on hollowed waters and, and, and there's everything you really wanted to know came from that, that, that genre, that area from the broadheads to the Catskills. And then later into, into central Pennsylvania with the, the limestone school, but, uh, and then, you know, you have, uh, we could just interject quickly. You got, uh, you know, our, our Midwest friend, Ann Miller, who's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, f famous with her book and stuff like that. And we could talk a little bit about that later. Um, Cornelia Thurza Crosby. Tell us about her. Yeah. Known as Flyrod Crosby. Um, she's from Maine. She lived in the 1890s. She, I consider her the firecracker of our ancestors because she was like, uh, you know, 
I consider her the first lady of American fly fishing. She was raised in the outdoors. She always loved the outdoors. She learned how to hunt and fish from local Native Americans and guides as a young girl. So someone that a young girl who was just always obsessed with the outdoors. So she would learn anything that she could. But as a single woman, she had to go and work. So she worked as a bank teller. And one, she was like maybe 29 years old. And one day she became really quite ill. And so she went to the doctor and the doctor said to her, what your prescription is, is a good dose of the outdoors. You need to leave work and you need to go outdoors. And it's about the same time that she was turning 30. And a good friend of hers gave her a fly rod for her birthday. And she became such an astute fly angler that she earned the name Fly Rod Crosby. Now, going back to where women have gotten a raw deal, she started writing a widely syndicated column for that was published in New York, Boston, and Chicago. I mean, three huge industries, right? So she started writing this syndicated column, and it was called Fly Rod's Notebook. She named it that because she was afraid that if people knew that it was a woman that was writing the column, no one would ever publish it or read it. And so she, because she was writing these the syndicated column, Fly Rod's Notebooks, she did did what most people had, what no one had ever thought about doing before. She would travel to interview local lodges and guides, which is perfectly normal in today's day and age, right? But not back then. And so what she would do is she would go interview these local lodges and guides, and then she would write about them in her in Fly Rod's notebook. And she literally is the first person that ever marketed an area, and she marketed Maine. Wow. Yeah, she would, she appeared like she would go. And and if you think about this, we've all been to trade shows. And those of you who have, have actually had booths at trade shows know how much work that is. Well, she would literally travel by train with a log cabin, a deconstructed log cabin. And she would go to these different, um, these different sportsman's shows. The first one was the first annual sportsman's show in New York in Madison Square Garden in 1898. And so she literally would travel by train and go in there and set up a log cabin. She would put together a log cabin and she would feature herself and her rifle and a recreated hunting camp complete with a log cabin. And she would talk to people about why they needed to come and visit Maine to do hunting and fishing. And so I love her because she like would wear clothes that she actually made. And when she did this first annual sportsman's show, she wore a scandalously short doe skin skirt that she herself had made. It was one foot shorter than the norm showing her ankles. So if any of you have like a weakness for ankles, you probably should not look up the, look up the, the pictures. Right. <laughs> but she, she wasn't even afraid of that. She just, she was so entrenched in what she was doing and she had such a love for her home state that she just wanted everyone to experience it. In fact, she did so much for Maine that when they came out with their first guide license, they gave it to her. They gave her the honorary first guide license on March 19th, 1897. And, you know, today when I think about what she did, I, you know, we have influencers that we've just talked about and sports celebrities, but she was legitimately a sporting celebrity for three decades. And like, for instance, she guided Teddy Roosevelt's. I mean, you know, and again, she did so much for it that when Maine was going to stop giving out caribou licenses, they gave her the privilege of being the the last person to shoot a legally uh, legally shot caribou in Maine. And, you know, and and to me. You know, Dame Juliana Berners was a conservationist as well. She talked about conservation and being respectful and not trespassing in that. But, but 
on a whole nother level, Cornelia Flyrod Crosby um, was a great conservationist. She talked about how to protect the waters and, it, and and the land and the animals because it makes sense. If you're out talking about and having people come into your state because this is where you, know, you really believe that you have so much to offer, then you're going to want to preserve that as well. And she was very big at talking about conservation of those wild places that we love as well. Amazing, amazing stuff. Mary Orvis Marbury. Yes, Mary Orvis Marbury. I don't know if you know or if you've ever heard of this like crazy store called Orvis. Yeah. (laughs) No, yeah, right. I mean, Orvis, what's that? I mean, literally, you just mentioned that you had been at an Orvis Lodge, right, in England. And so, um, for so Mary Orvis Marbury obviously was from Vermont around the 1890s as well and 1880s 1890s and it's interesting that if you love Orvis it is the work of Mary that made Orvis what it was and not that of her two older brothers which is interesting because you would think that you know um her father actually bought Orvis when she was born and so he, it was a family business and she took over the fly tying operation when she turned 20. So very much, again, the family business, getting into the family business. So when she took over this fly tying operation, when she was 20, she realized that there was like this issue. So people would call and they would order flies from Orvis and she they'd send the flies out and people would say, this is not what I ordered. This is not what I ordered. I ordered mm-hmm you know, this fly and you've sent me something else. And it dawned on her that people in different areas would call the same fly different names and not realize it or call the same fly a different name, right? And so she spent years traveling and asking everybody that she could interview, every angler, every guide, you know, in the, in around the nation, what do you call this fly? What do you call this fly? And her work created this book right here, which is the favorite flies and their histories. So this is a ridiculously intense book. It is, um, it's a 500 show that book again. Can you show the book again? Please? Yeah. Okay. It is Wait. a, yeah, it is a 500 page volume that includes 290 regional patterns and 32 color palettes. Our color plates. And honestly, if you can find in the first version of this book, or you can find even one of the pages from this book, the original book, it's worth hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars. They're so popular. And yeah. but what she did was she made this vast, huge book so that people that ordered a fly from Orvis then knew that this was the fly that they were getting. And that was something that no one had ever thought to do, standardize fly patterns and names before. And she did it to solve a problem that she had at her family business called Ormus. So so the next time- Truly, truly remarkable. I mean, this is is remarkable stuff, Jen. Uh, Totally amazing. Um, Carrie Frost, tell us about her. Sure. So I'm from a small town in in Wisconsin called West Bend, not very far from Stevens Point. Uh, So Carrie was, um, her father was a prominent guide in the area. And back then, um, a lot of German settlers settled in this area. And um, they, they 
literally brought with them what they knew from England to and from Germany to fish there. And so they brought their style of fishing there as well. And but her dad was a prominent guide in the area, but he would still order all of the flies that he wanted from overseas. And so the first day of trout season was approaching and no flies had been sent. So they, the flies were, they couldn't get them. They'd been lost or whatever. And her dad was was in a panic. And she had tied some flies for her dad um, in the past. So what she did, because they knew that the fly, they'd heard that the flies were not going to arrive. She sat at her kitchen table with the help of her kitchen staff and tied flies for her dad. But she tied them in a different way than the flies that her that her dad and his clients had been used to. She tied the bugs that she saw in the backyard. Again, we see this theory, this this um, history over and over and over. Right. So women solving problems that there are. Uh, it doesn't make sense that we're using these still crazy flies that are found in a different country. Let's tie the flies that the fish here are used to seeing. So she did that. And her flies were so successful that she started tying flies with only women staff. Because back in the day, um, women that were married could not own their own money, could not make their own money. And so there were all these women that wanted to help out, that wanted to have their own money back in this this time and couldn't and couldn't. So she literally, and again, back in the day, women could not own property either. So she had her dad buy a store. At this point, her flies are becoming very popular. She had her dad buy a store for her in his name. And then she hired a bunch of women and she brought them into this building to work so that she could legitimize her work and that of the women who were fishing and who were tying flies for her. So she created not only a job for herself, but a job for women who wanted to earn money. But again, as we see at this point, women in the industry were not taken seriously. So she named it CJ Frost Fishing Tackle Manufacturing Company. Hmm. And because she didn't want it to be, she didn't want anyone to know that it was owned by a woman because they wouldn't buy their flies. And in 1906, that company totaled four million flies. They tied four million flies. And at one point, they were tying 10 million flies a year and they, and CJ Frost fishing tackle manufacturing company was instrumental in making Stevens point the fly tying capital of the world. And so even though she sold that company in 1919, it remained in business until the 1980s. And when I was a child, my mom's best friend was a fly tire for that company. That's truly amazing stuff. We got so much more to talk about. Um, we're going to get into the Rangeley Lakes. Then we're going to talk a little bit about women anglers and the Catskills, all that great stuff and so much more and more and more. And uh, we're going to take one question quickly before we take a break. Um, and it's something we talked about, Jen. Uh, by the way, this is fascinating stuff. I am I am loving every second of this and soaking it in, Jen. And so uh, this is over the moon, listeners, uh, the good stuff that's coming out here. This is something we talked about in the early part, and it's interesting that uh, uh, one of our subscriber listeners, uh, Kaylee from Hartford, Connecticut, is, is going to is going to ask this question, and we kind of covered it, but we'll just uh, reaffirm it. Uh, hey, Jen, I used to walk into a fly shop I like, and they used to treat me like I was a second class citizen. Only paid attention to me when I was with my husband. Seems like the last few years they jump all over me when I come in. Uh, different staff, older guys were more disrespectful and brushed me off. Do you think men are tripping over themselves now to cater to ladies now that the diversity thing is more hip? Um, that's her question. I think you covered it pretty thoroughly. Um, what any other additional thoughts you could give Kaylee from Hartford, Connecticut? Well, 
Yeah. Hey, Kaylee. Thanks for the for the um for the question. I do think that they are now tripping over women for two reasons. Not be, not just because um of the diversity aspect and the work that Orvis itself has done on getting more women involved in the sport and other and other industry uh, manufacturers as well. But because there's been so many studies that have come out that show that women are a force to be reckoned with it, with their purchasing power. And so now not only, and that's good news for us, not only do they see us as a valuable um, entity in the fly shop, uh, they want to see more women in there, but they realize that we actually hold the purse strings in a lot of places and we like to spend money and we like to spend money on stuff that we love. And so why would they then thwart us in any way in their shop, knowing that they're going to make a sale as well? Amen on that. And um I'll tell you right now that in 90%, 95% of my male clients uh, are on a noose by their wives and their significant others. And that's just the way it goes these days. And uh, they're like, my wife's letting me take a break. My my significant other, my fiance's letting me take a break. Bottom line is you show these guys in the shop some plastic, the ones that say Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and they'll tr- and you spend money with them and patronize them, and they will trip over anything. They'll trip over a Martian. They'll trip over a, 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 a French poodle that walks in his shop. It's all about spending money with these people, and also um, acknowledging the fact that they're the experts, and let them give you all the decisions, and and let them let them suggest things, and let them feel important. You want to make them feel important that like they're really doing you a service and they really know what you're talking about. And uh, it's a respect thing. Um, it goes both ways. You respect them. They respect you. Um, it's, you know, you know, everybody's got attitudes. Everybody has uh, peculiarities, but um, if you let them do their job, they love to explain things to you and, and you take them serious and come in and say, Hey, Hey Jim, you gave me some great advice last time. Do you have any more good advice on what should I buy here? How should I rig this up? And how should I do this? They love to talk to people. They love to, they love to chat with you. And I, I think it's a two way street. So that's just, that's, that's it from that one, Kaylee. Uh, wish you all the best. Um, and we're going to take a break right now because we still got a ton to cover and we're with the magnificent Jen Ripple, who is totally flooring me with her knowledge. And I am just soaking every bit of this in and enjoying the hell out of it. And I think you guys are also, we will be right back. Books and Lines have been around since Cro-Magnon Man and Neanderthal Man when they were living in caves and in the Alps in Europe trying to find out how to catch the brown trout that were in the rivers and the Atlantic salmon that were running up the hollowed waters of Europe's rivers. And to do that correctly, you need the finest quality possible. And nothing more is entitled to that quality than Angler Sport Group and their incredible portfolio of Daiichi hooks. Daiichi hooks are at the pinnacle of the hook experience from all their dry fly, nymph, wet fly hooks, specialty hooks. I am particularly fond of their specialty dry fly hooks uh, in the very micro minutia sizes. White gaps that allow for the hooking like some of my favorite hooks by Partridge back in the day with Vince Marinero's Mitch hooks, but their designs today are absolutely incredible. Also, 
Bari Voss material is absolutely at the top. Their leader systems, their fluorocarbon, their colored leaders, which come in lime green and light blue and different colors, allow you to fool some of the most selective trout, some of the most selective salmon and steelhead in the world. Bari Voss is by far at the pinnacle. Suppleness, strength, diversity is all encompassed when you use Bari Voss and Daiichi hooks all at Angler Sport Coop from New York. Books are the foundation of Hollowed Waters podcasts. We talk about them in reverence, all the great literature that our sport, our art form, our passion of hollowed waters and sport of fly fishing has given us has its strong link to where all of this has come from the books that we have featured are in bibliographies in the hollowed water podcast series and in the repertoire of the many guests that we've had ever since hollowed water started starting with iconic guests like paul weimer's book and Kelly Gallops and Simon Gosworth and Rick Kustich and Topher Brown's Atlantic Salmon books and Al Cucci and Dr. Bachman and the list goes on. But basically, what I'm trying to say here in this advertisement is that we need to pay attention to all these great books and the best way to do that is to go and sometimes dig into your Amazon or your local fly shops or your local bookstores, Barnes & Noble, and get a hold of them. Um, also, some of the books and some of the experiences I've had with books has been truly the crux of my fly fishing career, like my selectivity, the theory and method of fly fishing for fussy trout, Atlantic salmon and steelhead, and also my latest book, The Brown Trout, Atlantic Salmon Nexus, which details the history and the lore, the tactics, the techniques for these wonderful fish that we love. We would love you to go and experience more, to log in to our website and see the bibliographies we have had and explore your joy for the many authors for the many decades and perhaps centuries that have given their knowledge and their wisdom and their crafts and share them with you. Hello listeners, this is Caleb, editor and producer of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast. This episode and all of season three of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast features music by Dutch EDM artist Arpo. You can find them on Instagram at Arpo Music and find their music on all major streaming platforms. Our thanks to Arpo for the use of their song Floating and for their support of the Hallowed Waters Journal. Welcome back. We are with Jen Ripple talking about the ladies' legacies in this magnificent sport of fly fishing for trout and Atlantic salmon and the foundation of fly fishing throughout the world. And um, we're going to get into all these greats. We've gotten into some amazing stuff from from uh, from from Jen's uh, thorough research that she's done and her her wonderful passion that she loves um, in this sport. And uh, we're going to start off in the Rangeley Lakes and. 
Atlantic salmon, landlocked Atlantic salmon, um, and the streamer fly. And uh, I'm gonna have a, I have a book right here, the Black Ghosts and the Art in um, Herb Welsh, the Art of Tying the Black Ghost and the Art in Maine's Guides Wilderness. And we talked about Crosby and what a dynamic force she was. And uh, you know, there's so much was written about Herb Welsh and his carvings and and his Black Ghost. And then in this book, you know, they they give attention to to Carrie Stevens and and the gray ghost and but once again you know there's it seems to be more dominated about herb and what he did and he was the foundation but Carrie was absolutely huge and and creating the modern day streamer really was a function of that Rangeley Lake school and we talked about you know the stuff that Preston Jennings did in the Catskills with the streamer and and sort of streamer flies for for Atlantic salmon, landlocked Atlantic salmon, which translated into the trout legacy. But Carrie Stevens, um, talk about her, Jen, and, and her major contribution. Yeah, so here I have a book on Carrie Stevens. You can see here. Right. Carrie Stevens, maker of Wrang Wrangley favorite trout and salmon flies. Um, yeah, Carrie Stevens, was, she's from Maine, um, 1920s or so. Her husband was a very prominent guide in the area. And we'll see this happens a lot, you know, um, a woman. And even to this day, when I ask, how did you get in, women, how did you get into fly? And I ask them to raise their hands. Was it, and I go down the male uh, opportunities, you know, was it a husband, a boyfriend, a dad, a grandpa that got you involved? The vast majority of women still get into the sport because of some supportive male figure, right? And um and it was no different for Carrie. So her husband was a prominent guide and she was introduced to the English style of flies through her husband's clientele. Um, she would have all these prominent guy, uh, people from England come over and would guide with her husband and they would show her their flies. And, uh, one day she had a lawyer, he had a lawyer from England at the house and they, he was going on and on and on. Her and her husband were talking over and over and over about going on and go, about the fishing that they were going to do and the fishing that he had done. And so when they left, uh, she sat at the table and she tied a fly and she thought, well, I'm just going to go down to the water right there. It was very prominent brook trout water. I'm going to go down and I'm going to see what this is all about. But she didn't know what she was doing tying a fly. So until this point, all the materials in the flies that they were tying were tied in a, in a vertical manner on the hook. Well, because mm -hmm. she wasn't familiar and didn't have any training in tying flies, she tied the materials on a hook in a horizontal manner. Yeah. And she created what we now know today as the modern day streamer. So if you like to streamer fish, you can attribute it to Carrie Stevens. But that's not, you know, tying that fly wasn't what made her who she is. Not Kelly Gallup. It's Carrie not Stevens. Kelly Gallup. That's right. There's no uh, there's no <laughs> Kelly Gallup involved here, but he can thank Carrie. <laughs> Stevens for his for his work and but what she did but she knew of Kelly Gallup though yeah probably not I don't think <laughs> was even a thought just trying to give a plug for my but for my bro <laughs> Kelly Kelly I love my Kelly. bro hi Kelly <laughs> bro um, but because she tied everything on on a horizontal manner, she tied that fly and then she went down to the water and she fished and she landed in almost seven pounds. So six pound, 13 ounce or something like that brook trout. Jeez. And she she landed this giant trout and she looked up to where 
all the guys were coming in from their day of fishing and they were filleting their fish up there. <clears throat> so she did what any respectable woman again would do. She took that fish up under her arm. She ran up there and she plopped this thing down in front of all these men that were coming in from their fishing trip. And everyone said, what did you catch that on? Right. And so when she showed them her fly, they all said, oh my gosh, could you make some of those for us? You know, can I order some of those flies from you? So she went home literally with a fly time business now but it's interesting again, and we talk about the, the, the things that women have gone through that attorney that was sitting at her table that morning and who was there to witness this whole thing. And I know this is going to be really hard for a lot of you to understand or to even comprehend, but that, that an attorney would ever lie. But uh, <laughs> this attorney went back to England and tried to claim that pattern then as his own. But by the time he got back, word had traveled so far already that we do know that Carrie Stevens has remained as as the the uh, the person who created the first modern day streamer fly. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Her and uh, Herb Welsh at the same time. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Uh, that is fantastic. Let's um, let's get into the Catskills, and um, you know we, we have so many iconic legends. But I'm going to do a little quote um, from Mac Francis's book or Austin Francis uh, of the Catskill Rivers uh, iconic book here that we talked about in the. Uh, in the um in my in my podcast series on the Catskills but here's a here's a little description of that that famous lady that um that fished in the long black gown down to her boots that fish with Theodore Gordon and um here Mac uh Mac Francis writes she wore a tan tam o'shanter sweater short jacket and skirts with with stout shoes and leggings and waited as did Gordon without waterproofs, which means waiters. Um, as she fished, her long skirts caressed the ripples, creating the illusion that she moved along the surface of the stream like a ghost. We never learned by her name, only that she was a vision around 1895 in the Catskills. By the time Gordon met other fishing friends on the Never Sing, she has already left him. Very much disappointed in love, quoted Herman Christian, uh, one of Gordon's cohorts. Gordon remained a bachelor for the rest of his life. There she was, this picture of her, and we have a picture of her in hollowed waters. And it was a lady that broke Gordon's heart. And forever mm -hmm. he became a reclusive hermit that never wanted anything to do with people. So there was love love uh bequeathed uh, un, un, unresolved love that brought this poor frail man with a mustache and he never wanted to date another woman again she must have been this magnificent thing but uh as max says you know um ahead of this time he was in many respects of england gordon was looked upon by this loss of welcome the entry of women into the into the exclusive male sport um you know women were rarely seen on american trout streams until world until after world war 1 when there were more courageous female anglers ventured forth they did so uh at their own peril not knowing if they would be ridiculed ignored or treated as invaders of a male domain. Um, so th then you see pictures of women in the Catskills. You'll see like 30, 40 women lined up on the banks of the Beaver Kill. And and then you have, you know, the Deddies. Uh, and you're going to talk about the Deddies and 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 Minnie uh, and, and the Darby and, you know, that whole legacy. But this was some big stuff because this was 
these were these male dominated sporting clubs, these, these lodges in the Catskills that were for these, you know, wall street tycoons and these big bankers, like, like uh, Edwin Hewitt and, and guys like that. And La Branche was, uh, it belonged to one of the clubs on the, on the Esopus. And uh, so then we get into, you know, we got Winnie Ferndon, AKA Winnie Deddy. Then we have Mary. Um, then we have Elsie uh, Darby. Um, talk a little bit about these wonderful ladies and their fly tying and what, what magnificence they brought, uh, Jen. Sure. So um, Winnie, uh, so Winnie and Mary Deddy, uh, a mother and a daughter. Uh, this legacy really starts with Winnie. Um, and she was from Roscoe, New York, around 1920s. And she was the owner, along with her husband, of the Riverview Inn, which was on very fabled waters. Right. And and um, so, you know, we see as you if you study this story of the Deddies, you see that they they made money and they had this in and then they lost it and then they had to go back and they like they kept but they kept themselves afloat during the depression and stuff by their tie fly, fly tying abilities and mostly it was Winnie that tied the flies well when they first took over the the riverview they riverview. wanted to uh supply flies and but they didn't know you know what her husband Walt and Winnie they wanted to tie flies for their own um, in which was very prominent in the fishing industry. This is like where you would stay if you wanted to fish in this area. And so they contacted a man named Rube Cross to help tie flies for the inn. And, and Walt uh, specifically wanted to learn from Rube Cross and he refused to teach them to tie flies. Um, and so they did what any respectable anglers that wanted to tie flies would do. They Rube ordered, was a grumpy old man. Excuse me. Rube was a yes, very grumpy old man. Very grumpy old man. And when I think oh, about, dude. yeah. And, and I like the fact that not very many people know, have ever heard of his name, but the vast majority of people know who Winnie and Mary Deddy are, you know, that's like kind of like karma right there, but he refused. So they did what any, she did what any respectable woman would do again. They bought a whole bunch of flies from him. And then they, she sat at her table with her husband and they deconstruct the flies. So he would deconstruct yeah. the fly and she would write down what the steps were. Right. And then they would tie the, So they then began to tie their own flies. And so I think about it. I'm like, Wow, he, you know, Root Cross could have probably made a lot of money either selling his flies to them or at least got money by, by, um, teaching them to tie flies, but he didn't. So he lost out on what could have been an, a, a lucrative endeavor on his part just because he was that grumpy old man, right? So they made, at first, she tied enough flies to fill the display at the Riverview. But then in, by 1929, she had, was selling flies as well and sold 200 dozen flies. And then fi, uh, a year later, 1930, sold 500 dozen flies. And literally, this is what kept her going and kept the, them afloat during difficult times was their fly tying operation. In fact, their flies were so meticulous. And then Mary, her daughter came back up when she um, had a couple of kids of her own. She wanted to make some extra money and started in on the fly tying operation as well. And Winnie and Mary's flies have been synonymous with not only perfection because each fly was tied exactly the same, but there, but had become kind of like a status symbol. If you were fishing the daddy fly, you would let people know that you were fishing the daddy flies, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That was amazing. And, and that river view in and, and Ferndon's fur Dawn's pool where Steenrod invented the Hendrickson. 
Um, and he named it after a, after Hendrickson, his fishing partner. And it was happening on a blustery afternoon in late April, early May. And that's when it happened. And Steenrod was the man who was the, who was the final, who was the, uh, the heir to the throne of Theodore Gordon's flies and, and Roy Steenrod and, uh, all that great stuff. We did, we did 12 hours of this in the podcast on the Catskills. So we're just opening up. If you want to know more about that. Go to that Catskill series I did with Joe Chabayos from the Catskill Fly Tires Guild. And then there was Elsie and Harry Darby. Um, you know, Sparse Gray Hackle called them the world's greatest fly tires. They were machines. They were production machines. Uh, they founded the Beaverkill Willow, Willow Emick Rod and Gun Club, fought the new Highway Route 17 bridge to come through there. They sort of um, invented that mascot of the two-handed bee mock trout that lives on on both one, one's head points up the whistle, willow bee mock, one head points up the, the beaver kill because they didn't know which way that the trout wanted to go. So that was the one-headed thing. And uh, the Catskill Women's Fly Fishers Club, uh, Julie Freenan, Firechild, um, more to this legacy. Anything on, on Elsie Darby? Uh, nothing that you haven't already mentioned. Again, you know, just a very prominent, uh, incredible woman in the area in that area that kept fly tying and fly fishing on the map for women. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Rosina Megan Boyd, tell us about her. Sure. So Megan Boyd, uh, she went by Megan Boyd, is from Scotland. Uh, she lived and was very famous for her fly tying skills around the 1930s to the 1970s. Um, she was a perfectionist salmon fly tyer. And if you've ever seen any of her flies or you ever have a fly of hers that's attributed and can be, and can be traced back to actually being tied by Megan Boyd, it is worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, she believed that a more perfectly a tied fly would catch more fish. Um, I talked to a man named Eric Steele, who's the producer of a uh, very famous producer in in uh, Hollywood. He actually produced a documentary called The Bridge. I don't know if anybody had ever um, watched that, but it was about the suicides that happened at the Golden Gate Bridge. He set up four videos and captured every suicide and then would go back and um, interview the families because he believed that 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 death was should not be the end of the person's story, right? There had to be more to the person. So he told those stories. Well, he was a, he's a, he, for whatever reason, um, he did a documentary on her called Kiss the Water. And, and when I got to talk to him, I said, well, are you a fly angler? Is that why you did this story on her? And he said, no, he didn't like to fish. He didn't, he didn't like to, the taste of salmon, none of that. But he um, had his dad had died. And for whatever reason, he was a proponent of cutting stuff out of newspaper articles and posting them on a bulletin board in front of his his uh, desk. And he had just gotten back from his dad's funeral and he sat down and he was thinking about his dad's obituary. And he looked up and he saw the obituary that was Megan Boyd's. And for for whatever reason, he found he wanted to tell that story from the story of maybe more finding out more than just that obituary. Who was this woman? Well, she happened to be a very um, prominent fly tire who never fished, but who lived on a beautiful stretch of river. So very much like himself, um, didn't like to fish, didn't like the taste of salmon. She said that she tied flies to catch the fishermen, not the fish. And you can see a picture of her on this, the cover of this book. She was not a becoming yeah. woman in any way, you know? So, um, the only way that men would show her attention was because she was this ridiculously 
beautiful fly tire, right? And so she tied flies for very, very famous people. She tied flies for Queen Elizabeth. She tied flies for King Charles. In fact, she tied fly, the, the gift that King Charles gave to Diana on their wedding day was a box of Megan Boyd's flies that she wow. had tied specifically for him to give as his gift. Um, wow. And it's interesting, you know, if you watch the documentary and you should watch the documentary called Kiss the Water, um, you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting. They go through her life and her story, but I you never see a woman that she taught to tie flies and she would never teach women to tie flies because she would consider women competition she would teach men to tie flies but never women to tie flies so um and you know and and i will say that at the end of the day um she did realize that a more perfectly tied fly did not catch more fish than a fly that had a little bit more imperfection in it so she had she had tied all these flies to be perfect because she really believed they catch more fish and then found out at the end of her life that they did not wonderful wonderful kay broadney Yes, Kay Broadney. Okay, so I consider her the the uh, the Indiana K of our story. If you think of Indiana Jones, you can think of Indi you can think of Kay Broadney. So she was from Washington. She was originally from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, which which is very close to West Bend, Wisconsin, where I grew up. So again, a lot we see a lot of women coming out of that area fishing, and it makes sense because there are fabled trout streams that run through there in the Driftless area, right? It's, so the Driftless area in that area of Wisconsin is where the four glaciers that flatten the Midwest stopped before they got there. So if you get to the Driftless area nowadays, it's so preser preserved and so pristine, and they've done so much rehab there that there's literally in Wisconsin alone 3,000 miles of creek, um, spring creeks that are all almost all. I love the Driftless area. Yeah. I absolutely worship the Driftless area. Yes, God bless same. you. You're closer to the Driftless area than I am. God yes. bless you. So, so here we see Kay Brodney, who came from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. She obtained a BA in zoology. So by this time, the 1940s, 1950s, women were, you know, going to college. They were branching out. They weren't just, you know, although they were still mostly homemakers, there were these that were forging the way. And Kay is one of those those women for sure. So her story, her fishing story starts at the Golden Gate Casting Club. And you'll love this because of what we talked to before. She um, she was an expert caster and she placed third in a distance casting competition in 1950. And so when she went up to get her, her award, they told her that she could not get that award because she was a woman. So she then went back in 1956 and won the Ladies Dry Flying Act accuracy competition you know and and held that title but in 1962 so she was literally when she, once she picked up a fly rod she became obsessed and obsessed fool like a lot of us do and she um she, all, that's all that she wanted to do she just wanted to fish and she wanted to go out and search for all these unusual fish that people hadn't fished for you know fishing for bass or trout in Wisconsin was not enough for her. So in 1962, she landed 137.6 pound tarpon in front of the good old boys, including Ted Williams, on a rod and a line that she herself had made. Oh and that God. kind of that kind of like pushed her into infamy when she did that. And when you think about it, casting a, a you know a, a rod and a line, landing a 137 pound tarpon i mean we're not talking about the orvis h3 here and a rio a rio line we're talking about an old rod and an old line so this was really quite the feat 
And so then she became this obsessed fool and she wanted to, she wanted to get more and more into fishing and she wanted to get into travel fishing. She wanted to travel to different places to fish, to catch these exotic fish. So to support her addiction, she went back to school and she went to Rutgers and got a master's in library science and became the head of life science cataloging at the Library of Congress for no other reason other than to make more money so that she could travel more so that she could fish more. So this is not a woman who is uneducated in any way. This is a, and, I, and it's interesting. I think of her as like this librarian, this buttoned up librarian during the day. And then when she leaves, she becomes this like Indiana Jones where she's out uh, fishing for all these crazy fish, right? So she was the first person to catch Dorado on a fly in Argentina. She snuck into Venezuela and fished for peacock bass. She stalked rare freshwater fish, passed huge snakes and piranha and venomous snakes and all these other things that, you know, a lot of men wouldn't even go where she was going. Even though there were men on these trips with her, they would not go into the places where she would. She would go into where the, the dangers were to fish and catch these really rare fish that no one else did. So today it's it's normal for us to travel to Argentina and fish for fish for all these crazy fish, right? But back in the day, no one did that. So she literally was like one of the first people to do this like exotic traveling for fish. And um, at some point, um, she was bitten by a bug on one of her her uh, um, spider was it a brown spider? recluse probably was <laughs> i'll tell you kick my ass kick my ass for five days unbelievable yeah, so she was bit by this by this insect that caused her arteries to scar and as a reaction to that insect bite and she never she never complained she just continued fishing oh, and uh and she died actually in 1994 after um suffering a circulatory disease that was caused by that insect bite Holy but until that time she was literally if you liked her fish in remote places you can think hey Brodney. oh my god i gotta look up more about her i gotta talk to her doctor maybe i'm yeah. I'm getting scared. I'm getting scared now. <laughs> You're getting, you got me all worried. Oh my God. Um, so uh, let's get into now. We've got to get into the grand dom of fly fishing, the one and only Joan Wolf. Uh, but I have someone paused. before her. Oh, that's right. Helen her. Shaw. Helen yes. Shaw. And I have to mention Helen Shaw because I'm sure you have a lot of fly tires out there who follow a recipe when they tie flies. Right, right, right. And so the first person to ever tie flies, uh, to ever put a recipe together where people could tie flies would be would be Helen Shaw. And so she was, again, right. from Wisconsin in that same area, Madison, Wisconsin, and was taught by her father to, to fish and tie flies at a very early age. And she was actually an established fly tire by the time she was 20 years old. Oh, and wow. she got married to um, her husband, Herman Kessler, who was the art director for Field and Stream. And they moved to New York and she became very ill one day. Didn't even realize that it was unusual for women still in this day and age to tie flies as a as a business. And so she got really sick. They went to the doctor. The doctor um, asked her what she did. And she said that she dressed flies. And the doctor looked at her husband and asked how long she'd been delirious. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah. But anyways, because her husband, because she was a very prominent fly tire, she would be asked to go to all these conferences and tie flies as a demonstration. But back in the day, there were no big TVs that you could watch. So people would stand around, literally stand around her table and try to see what she was doing. And her husband, who wasn't a fly tire, also wanted to know what she was doing. And so he thought that 
two of them came up with this process where she would tie a fly. He would take a picture and she would write down the steps. Holy so my. if you follow a recipe today to tie flies, you can attribute it to this book right here, Fly Tying Materials, Tools and Techniques, which was written by Helen Shaw. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh my God. Do a recipe. Yep. If I get steered off course, please leave me on course here because we got so many names and, and you are you are the you are the uh, the benefactor of all this wonderful stuff. Um, so, yes, now we go to Joan Wolf. How could everything in fly fishing? It was Lee Wolf, the master. The I've had a great time um, in my in my uh, sojourn, my saga, my journey. I've had a chance to talk to Lee several times. Uh up in Lou Beach, when I we have a place in the Catskills on the Never Sink, and I used to go up there a lot. When I first started dating Lori, that's her family's place, and um, I met Lee one day when I went up to Lou Beach and was poking around on the Upper Beaver Kill, and and I said, "Oh my God, you're Lee Wolf!" And we sat down and talked. And I was from Washington D.C. at the time, and uh, talked about Atlantic salmon and and my trips when I was a little boy. And I taught, caught my first Atlantic salmon when I was nine, living in Poland on our farm off the Baltic Sea, and we talked about Atlantic salmon. And then I met Lee Wolf and Joan at a um, McAllen dinner. McAllen Scotch was uh, touring uh, the United States, uh, giving demonstrations on their, uh, giving tastings on their Scotch. And Lee was tying flies, um, uh, salmon flies, and he was doing them with no vice in his hand. So he was uh, was doing that. And uh, and then I met Joan there. And Joan, it was just uh, just everything you want in a person, a lady. Um, and uh, one thing I could, I'm going to talk about a little bit about Joan is is what Mac Francis in, in his Catskill Rivers uh, did. Uh, Joan Wolf is exceptional, well qualified. He talked about all the abilities of women, and then he interviewed Joan, and and Joan talked about um, coordination and why women are, are so superior. Joan agrees with sparse. Uh, this was sparse gray hackle that women are more natural fly casters because they have a better sense of rhythm and timing timing. It's like dancing. He says, uh, she says, when you get the rod loaded behind you, it is a perfect feeling of balance weight and the force you've exerted a beautiful flow of the line that you feel right down to your toes. And that's such a beautiful way of describing the casting. And, and when you see her doing your demonstration casting and, and all her casting, it's a work of art. It's like dancing. It's like rhythm. And men tend to be a little more uncoordinated. And when I when I teach fly casting to my students and my clients, and I always use women as models because they they have a delicate touch. They don't overpower things. Joan is the champion of it all. She was a great Atlantic salmon fly fisher, trout fisher. Um, uh, there's not enough uh, accolades that you could give to Joan Wolf. I turn the floor over to you, uh, Jen. Yeah, you know, I started doing this uh, when I first started doing this history lesson. I thought that our story started with Joan Wolf. I thought that's for sure where I was going to find our story starting. And so we've just been through so many women that preceded her, right? Yeah. But in modern days, Joan Wolf is by far, you know, um, our first lady of fly fishing now. Um, she, you know, when I think about Joan Wolf, I, you know, I mean, I know you and I are both over the age of 
11, right? You're over the age of 11. I'm not asking how old you act. I'm asking 35 years old, just learning. (laughs) That's right. So, I mean, but she won her first title in 1938 at the age of 11 for her first casting title. I mean, and she studied the pure physics of the cast. That's what, you know, she knew how that rod worked. She knew how the line was going to move and she just practiced. And so by age 11, already we see an accomplished, accomplished caster. So won her first title in 1938. I know that you and I are both over the age of 34, but by the time that she was 34, she had already had 17 national and one international casting titles. Crazy, craziness. Like crazy. So, and she's from Jersey. And she's from Jersey, for Christ's sake. She's from Jersey, damn it. Yeah, go figure, right? I mean, Salvato, Salvato, a good Italian girl from Jersey. <laughs> Yes. Well, you know, um, if you can cast 80 feet, you think that's long. If you can cast 100 feet, which is what our most standard fly lines are, we think that's long. How about 150 feet? Is that big enough? Well, Joan actually cast 180, 161 feet. She won the woman's record distance cast with 161 feet. Isn't that incredible? Fly Rod and Reel named her the Angler of the Year in 1994. And Fly Rod and Reel also said that she has done for casting what Stephen Hawking has done for physics. And I think that that's beautiful representation, given that she herself studied the pure physics of the cast, right? So she... Yeah, she's considered um, a champion of women in fly fishing, obviously has done so much speaking, so much talking, so many casting lessons, has been such an the epitome of a champion for women in our sports that uh, you could go on forever talking about Joan. But what she's specifically known for would be those ridiculous, the ridiculous ability for her to do to cast the way that she did. And, you know, um, when you think about it too, let's think about it again, 161 feet with an old rod and an old level line, right? We're not talking about a weight forward line. We're talking about a level line here. It's just incredible when you think about it. That is, that is, that is truly amazing. Okay, Joan, we can't talk. We could go on and on and on talking about you and and you are just a magnificent person. And I, I see your car when I go to, to Roscoe, and I go to the to, I go to the fly shop across. There used to be Catskill Flies, uh, Dennis, um, who passed away. God bless your soul, Dennis. But uh, I don't know what it's called now. I think it's still called Catskill Flies. But um, I used to see you drive down through downtown uh, Roscoe, and your your license plate said Salmo S A L M O S, like Salmo Solar. And because you and Lee were so fanatical Atlantic salmon fishermen, and I have an old VH um, VCR. Uh, 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 tape from you called Autumn Silver when you were fishing in Nova Scotia on the Marguerite. And it was such a cute thing. You had your little, you know, your little red and black plaid checker things on and you had your white fishing vest. Lee was noted for his white fishing vest and and uh, Lee was fishing his little six foot bamboo rods catching 20 pound Atlantic salmon, which was crazy on a size 28 tag fly he was always known for bamboo rods on size 28s and he was just always doing the craziest stuff from riffling hitches and stuff like that and uh you were you were so young and dainty in that in that uh in that vc and that uh vhs tape or whatever and uh you you guys were like you were like leave it to beaver like the cleaver family you were so cute and and wonderful and i just still I don't have a vcr player anymore but i wish i could find it somewhere but it was so cool i think it was shot 
say 70s or yeah, late 60s or something. But um, it was amazing. So, Joan, we love you. You are still a champion. You are wonderful. And uh, there will never be another Joan Wolf. Um, let's go to Maggie Merriman. Sure. So Maggie Merriman, you know, not um, I, these are just my honorable mentions. The next couple. Um, so Mary Ma Maggie Merriman, she was from Montana and California in the 1970s, and she created the first fly fishing school for women and introduced the fly fishing vest for women. So, um, e you know, even in the 1970s, when women were not really involved in fly in the droves that they are now, Maggie saw that there would be a need and she was ahead of her time, uh, unfortunately, but saw a need to create a fishing school for women to go and learn, you know, because when you think about fly, fly, fly fishing is intimidating when you're getting into it. I don't care if you're a man Absolutely. or a woman. I mean, it's, yeah, it's such sure. a vision. It's such a visual sport. Everybody wants to stop and watch a fly angler. And when you don't know what you're doing at the beginning, it's intimidating to pick up a, a rod and cast that fly out there. Well, let's add on top of that the fact that, that you don't, there's not as many women in this sport and it's male dominated. That's just a whole nother thing. So creating a fly fishing school for women takes away the intimidation. So I would say if you want to get, if you want to get women into your casting, into your clubs, offer a, a casting class that's women only. And then don't be so obtuse as to have a man teach an all woman's fly fishing casting class, have a woman teach a casting class for women, right? I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous to say, but people still do that to this day. And so obviously then knowing that, you know, um, putting on your grandpa's waders that don't fit properly and wearing men's clothing that was made for fishing when you're a woman is still very uncomfortable, you know, so recognizing that women's gear, women needed to be comfortable and there needed to be specialized gear as well. So Maggie Merriman did that. And then, you know, Rhonda Sapp and Donna Tini from Colorado and Oregon around the same time produced the first line of women's fly fishing clothing and gear. So obviously too far ahead of their time to be successful, but the forethought to recognize that women, again, we're going to need their first, we're going to need their own gear. And now fortunately today, we have so much women's gear on the market that you literally can have waders made for you from everything from Miss Mayfly to Patagonia to Orvis to, you know, you name it, Sims. You can find gear that's going to hold on with there. With that note, with that note, I have a question I want to okay. take that that is you're talking about right now. So I'm going to we're going to answer that question. Um, it is from um, a Kelly, not Kaylee. We had a Kaylee first. This is Kelly from Reston, Virginia, which is outside of D.C. I know that area. I lived there at one time. Um, she says, uh, Jen, why is it a big deal trying to find top-of-the-line waders that fit women? Can you recommend a good brand, and what is your favorite fly fishing clothing brand for women, says Kelly from Reston, Virginia. So you mm -hmm. can answer that while you're talking. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, nowadays we do, like I just said, we do have a lot um, out there for women. It's so hard to find gear for women because women come in so many different sizes and shapes. And we have our own opinion of what we want to look like on the water and in everyday life that manufacture. And we're still such a small um you know, even though we're growing a small demographic. And so it costs a lot of money to produce this gear. And so it's going to cost a lot of money. There's going to be taking up a lot of real estate in your fly shops. And then women aren't really that big of a, even though we're growing, we're not a huge force in buying that gear at, at high numbers yet, just because there's not as many of us in the sport as there are men. So it can be a little bit difficult. However, there are a lot of different uh, brands out there now that are doing 
doing it well. So if you are a woman and you're not of normal size, you know, um, really small, you know, um, you know, pear shape, whatever you want your own specialized waiters, Miss Mayfly is for you because you can literally order anything. Um, I would say Sims makes excellent women's waiters. Patagonia makes women's waiters. Um, you know, Orvis makes excellent women wa women's waiters. So it really is now, it's not like there's just one that's doing it really well. It's what brand fits you best. I would suggest that you go and you try them all on, go to your local fly shop, try stuff on. For me personally, um, it's a, it's a hard toss up. I really like Orvis gear and I really like Sims waiters, as far as waiters are concerned, those to me fit me the best. Those are the ones that I like. As far as my boots, I, I am a huge proponent of Corker's boots because I love the sustainability aspect of them and not like in what they're made of. But the fact that I don't have to buy three pairs of boots to, to do all of my fly fishing, they have removable bottoms. So I can have a felt bottom. I can have a rubber bottom. I can have a studded bottom. And all I have to do is unhook the bottom, snap the next one in and they work. And I can carry one pair of boots with three different bottoms and fish anything I want to. So for me, that those are my, those are my favorites. And I would say as far as a woman's brand of clothing, that's like technical clothing that you can wear under your waders. You really should check out fishy wear, F I S H E wear which is owned by a woman named Linda Leary out of Alaska that's got really great um, products. And you can see they've she's do, she does a lot of collabs with Orvis. So if you've seen those printed packs and those printed rod carrying cases, that's all a collab with Fishy Wear. Wonderful, wonderful. We are talking uh, women and the legacies and the lore of their contribution with the famous Jen Ripple. And um, we are so honored to have her and I am learning so much and I am so gifted to, to have this podcast. So I hope you guys are listening to it also and enjoying as much as we are, but we must take our final break here. And then we're going to come back and go through a stream of names that we have cannot exclude. And we are going to end it up with our one zip clips and a couple of my nonsensical verbiage that I like to put in. And on that note, this is our final break, and we will be right back. I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly and field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job. Of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo, um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, you won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything. And, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline. Tell Marcos I said hi. And it is truly one of the best um, all around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. 
I can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years, and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, they're, they're new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing Scandi tapers, underhand casting with sinking heads, um, deep dredging skagits um, with, with heavier um, weighted intruders. Um, they do it pretty much all. And even with floating lines, like in long belly, uh, traditional spay casting, uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional style is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing. If you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're gonna really enjoy these rods. Hello listeners, as publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, our accolade winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. No other magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. We are back with Jen Ripple talking the ladies' legacies in fly fishing for trout and Atlantic salmon and steelhead and all our cold water beautiful fish that our podcast is all about. And I am really uh, taken aback by by the wealth and knowledge of, of all these ladies that have come with before us and are with us today and just shows you guys and, and gals that uh, how important it is to recognize um, all that they have contributed and all they continue to contribute. And the sport is just going to leaps and bounds and, and more women are getting involved in, and, and youth. I'm going to be interviewing a, a 10 year old on the night, one of the next podcasts. And, you know, we got to look at the whole spectrum, um, of, of where we're going with this because it's wide open to everybody. Nature is out there. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I look at, and I'm going to do a little introspective thought. Sometimes I think we're becoming, too absorbed in ourselves to, because that's the way society is today. That's the way uh, media is today. Social media is today. We absorbed by who we are. We we don't sometimes look at nature 
um, and, and look at what the sport of fly fishing brings to us from a natural standpoint. Sometimes we look at it as what what we what we could get out of it and how we could how we could add it to our portfolio of liking ourselves. And I think sometimes we become a little too narcissistic about it. We become too self-absorbed with ourselves about it. Now we're all about healing and and doing this and doing that and doing this and but we, we're forgetting about the key ingredient uh, to this sport, and it's it's the fish, and it's the river, and it's the hollowed waters. It's it's going out there in nature and watching a trout take a dry fly, watching an Atlantic salmon take a, a swing at a fly, um, watching a big brown chase a streamer. The savage beauty of nature itself is what draws us to the sport. And sometimes it's all about what can I get out of it? How many am I going to catch? Am I going to look good? How's my rod doing? How's this? How's everything's about us and me and me and me and narcissism. And, and, and I think we need to just take a step back because nature is there for everybody to enjoy man, woman, sexual orientation, uh, Martian could enjoy it. It's something that we still have precious on this planet that, that when we go to a clear Full flowing trout stream and watch trout behave in the natural world of world of a beautiful savagery of prey predator relationship. That's something every human being that has vision, that has feel, that has sense of smell, that has coordination can experience. And that is out there for everybody. And all the hype that we're throwing, all the bullshit that we're throwing at this sport today is junk compared to what nature is giving us on a day-to-day basis. And we have the blessing of God to get out there and enjoy it. And that's the creation that he has for us. And something like that can never be taken away from you, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you are. And that's my whole preach on that one. That's it. Jen, let's talk about Cecil Pudge Kleinkopf. 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 Yeah. Cecilia. Cecilia Pudge-Plankoff. Yeah, we called her Pudge. Um, She just recently passed away. It was a very sad um, day for all of us in the the fly fishing world. Um, She was an attorney, and her son was an avid fly angler. She was a conventional fly angler, did not fly fish, and uh, did not really ever want to go to Alaska. But her son talked her into it because he really wanted to go to Alaska. And so he begged and he begged and he begged her, and she finally went and she fell in love with Alaska and she watched, she was very, very competitive and she watched her son catch so many fish on that trip and on a fly and she did not catch many fish. So it made her want to become a fly angler. And so she, she took casting lessons. She learned what she could about fly. And then she went back with her son and she caught a bunch of fish as a fly, as a fly angler. And it was that trip that really changed her life. She decided that she was going to leave the lawyer, leave the law firm, and she was going to become a guide in Alaska as a woman. And this was many years ago, many years ago. And uh, she went up there and there were 13, uh, 12 guides at the time. She was the 13th. And all of them told her that she would never survive one year. And do you know, up until her death, she was still guiding up there. And she was the only one of those original guides that was still left up there guiding. And uh, she she had such a heart for women that she saw women would come along with their husbands, but they wouldn't fish. And so she would guide the husbands, but never the women. And so she started women's fly fishing 
which was to specifically have women come up in groups and fish and learn to cast and learn to fish up there in Alaska. And um, yeah, a very big patriarch, um, you know, in the guiding world for us as women. Wow. Amazing. Fanny uh, Krieger. Fanny Krieger. Yeah, Mel Krieger's Fanny. wife. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mel Krieger's wife. In fact, she was a survivor of Nazi occupation and left her homeland in France and came to the United States when she was 17, uh, where she met her husband, Mel, who you just mentioned, who was a tournament caster. And he actually is the one who got her into fishing in the 1960s. And then in uh, 1983, she and her friend Susan Williams started the Golden West Women's Fly Fishers. And that's because, you know, a lot of those a lot of those uh, casting clubs and a lot of those fishing clubs were men only still. And so they yeah. started one specifically for women. And it as of a couple of years ago, it had 150 over 150 members. And I'm sure it's grown since then. Uh, she was inducted into the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame in 1994. And in 1996, she created the International Festival for Women Fly Fishers. So um, talk about some foresight into the into the um, into the fishing world. Right. So you have a festival that's specifically just for women fly fishers. So um, there you go. Fanny Krieger, all because she married into Mel. Right. Absolutely. Mel was phenomenally designed, great spay rods, phenomenal spay caster. Um, some of the best Reddington rods that were made were designed by Mel Krieger and uh, still, still, still an amazing name that we always talk about. Annette McLean. Yeah, Annette McLean. So if you like that green stick called the Winston rod, you can attribute it to Annette McLean, who was, has, was the VP of operations and design at Winston and their head rod maker for over 25 years. And it's interesting that a, um, that a fly fishing company, a rod making company would make a woman the VP and have her be the head rod maker. But Winston did for a very, very long time. And so if you like that Winston rod, you can attribute it to Annette McLean. And then we get to April Volke. Um, what could you say about April Volke? Absolutely beautiful lady that that really transcended a lot of what's going on today when she made the cover of Fly Fisherman magazine and the new force of women today. Um, you know, British Columbia girl, learned to fish for, for steelhead, great spay caster, um, was on 60 Minutes, really brought a lot to the world of, of fly fishing for women. Um, Jen, your thoughts. Yeah. So uh, I'm a big fan of April's. I know her personally. She is by far one of the fishiest women, one of the smartest women I have ever met in this space. Um, she began fishing as a toddler. As you said, she's from British Columbia. Um, she began her guiding career. I mean, she was a young girl when she began guiding. And Dean the River, the Dean River. She was the mastress of the Dean River. She, she was. And she's, and like you mentioned, she's a very beautiful girl. She's gotten a lot, a woman, and she's gotten a, she got a lot of flack over the years. You know, um, when we talk about sexism now. Just another pretty face right yeah exactly a lot of men who would either hit on her she had to carry pepper spray to keep some of the men away you know not necessarily the bears um she's gotten a lot of flack they called her a cupcake and waiters which is just yeah. ridiculous because if you know april you know how smart how studied how how yeah. how what a good angler she really is she began guiding 
on the Fraser and Harrison rivers for sturgeon and salmon. I mean, that's not something easy to guide for. Mm-hmm. And that's how she got her start. And she, she literally left after several seasons to start her own guide operation um, in 2007 at the age of 24. So at age of 24, she'd already been guiding for a number of years and then was out on her own with her own business. And uh, the company was built on the basis that, of the promotion of education and encouragement. So for those that wanted to get more into fly fishing, she was a guide that you would go to to learn and to get encouragement from so that you could then go out and become a better angler. Um, since then, she's obviously highly respected in our sport and has traveled the the globe speaking and in pursuit of game fish, right? Um, saltwater. She does a lot of saltwater guiding. She a, lot a lot of saltwater. saltwater. Yeah, she's married to a man that's from Australia now, and so she splits her time between Canada and Australia. She fishes everywhere. Her writing has appeared in a number of industry-leading magazines, Fly Fisherman, Fly Rod and Reel, Fly Fusion Magazine, you name it, she's written for it. Um, and then... Um, in July, this is an interesting thing. In July of 2012, April became the first angler to be featured in Outside Magazine for yeah. their XX Factor segment. Um, yeah. You know, 60 it, minutes, 60 minutes clip. Absolutely. She was cussing like a Marine. We loved it. Badass That's right. cusser. That's April right. Was telling, she was no milk toast little prom princess, man. That girl was slugging it out, throwing them F bombs. We loved it, baby. That's right. That's right. I mean, she's been in a whole bunch of stuff like the Outdoor Channel did something called Buccaneers and Bones series. She was in right. that, the 60 Minutes Sports that you just mentioned, the Steve Harvey show, Discovery's Channels, Refined. Now it's um, all Bass Pro and, and and NASCAR. What the hell's going on with us? Exactly. Huh? Exactly. She's written and hosted so many um, different um, different. Uh, Entities you can't even count. Podcast anchored podcast anchored anchored podcast very very famous podcast anchored outdoors. Um, I mean that's just a a fantastic podcast for those of you who like podcasts. After you get done listening to this one, go check out April's anchored outdoors. Um, You know I mean she just is. She's a certified casting instructor. She's a fly tying instructor. You name it, April does it. Um, definitely someone that is a leader and has been an authority and a a spokesperson for women in our sport for many, many, many years. Yeah, yeah. Jen Ripple, we kind of talk about Dunn Magazine. Tell us about Dunn Magazine. What's your goals with Dunn Magazine? Where are you going? Where you started? Where are you going? Yeah, so I started the magazine um, when I realized in June of 2013 that there wasn't a women's fly fishing magazine, and I was really wanting to write for that, for one, and so I started it. And so by September, we had our first magazine. Uh, we're in our going into our 11th year. We tell the everyday angler story, so you don't have to be a professional angler to write your story. Everybody has an interesting story, and when I, I wanted the magazine to be empowering, I wanted it to tell women that they could pick up a fly rod, that this sport was for them, that they didn't have to be intimidated. And so that's why we tell the everyday story because I can tell April's story in the magazine and I can talk about how she catches beautiful steelhead, you know, but that doesn't say to the everyday angler that, that that it's easy enough for them to do. And so telling the everyday story then gets them to feel like, Hey, I can maybe do this. You know, we tell stories like um, a, a daughter whose dad always asked her to go fly fishing with him and she never did. And he died suddenly. And she, as she was cleaning out his stuff, she found his fly fishing gear and she put on his fly fishing gear and worked through the stages of grief with our dad's fly rod. So stories like that is what we tell. So uh, Dunn Magazine is uh, moving from Dunn Magazine into Dunn Outdoors. So literally, if it's Dunn Outdoors, it's Dunn Outdoors. And um, so it'll still remain a woman's magazine, but for 
everything, including fly. So obviously fly will be our, our, our capstone, but then moving into the outdoors and conventional fishing into upland hunting, into camping, into you name it, then outdoors is going to cover it. And that's currently underway right now. Wonderful. Wonderful, Jen. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, uh, Claire, we're going to go through a bunch of names here. A lot of people, uh, to end up this thing and then we're going to do zip clips, but, um, uh, I have uh, one more question here. Um, this is pretty pretty intense question from a, a guy, uh, Dylan from Lake Tahoe, California. He's a guy, 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 guy. And he's a guy guide, a guy guide. Um, <laughs> Dylan says, I am a guide in North America and Argentina. Why do husbands always say, take care of my wife, I'm good? When it becomes obvious that women excel in getting the fly fishing gig quicker and they end up totally out fishing their husbands. I wish men would treat their wives like equal fishing partners. And on the other flip side, to be fair, women need to stop acting frail and needy and vulnerable. Wow, Dylan, that's a pretty good operation. You little little lecture for both of us. Um, that's right. What's what's your thoughts on that whole thing? Well, thanks, Dylan. Uh, uh, the poor, frail male ego. <laughs> That's why they say, go take care of my wife. I'm good, which is actually really good for women because then we get undivided attention. I always feel like right. when I'm in the boat with a guy, I have him for eight hours and I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to have him tie flies on. I'm, I'm going to pick his brain for eight hours. He's mine for eight hours or six hours mm -hmm. or four hours. I'm yep. going to pick his brain. I'm going to learn as much as I can. And women tend to do that because we don't have this male, uh, fragile ego that we have to overcome. I think, unfortunately, a lot of men feel like they need to be an expert already, even though they aren't where they would become that expert if they would just yeah, get over themselves and want some instruction and listen to instruction. But I think it's like a, co a competitive thing that's just ingrained in some men. They just can't get past it, you know? So I, I think, I think that there's a lot of truth to what he said. And I think that men would do themselves a lot of good if they just listened to what the guide said. You don't know everything and it's okay not to know everything. Well, you know, guiding for 30 years and having thousands and thousands of clients, um, you could always tell, you ask a guy, have you fly fished before? Uh, he goes, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And then you say, well, when was the last time you fly fished? Oh, I was like, I don't know, I was like 13, the guy's 58, and I was 13, and I did a trip out to Montana, and I fly cast it. Oh, this is how I know my, yeah. So it's always like, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, we get it down. Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the male thing. Uh, yeah. We're going to go through a list of a lot of names, and you're going to go through a quick evaluation, uh, just a quick uh, couple of words about them. Um, Maxine McCormick. Yeah, Maxine McCormick. You know, I think that she is the new Joan Wolf, to be real honest. Um, she's a, currently America's number one female caster, youngest world champion in fly fishing history, world champion caster. And world, at, a, at the same age as, as Joan, at age 11, she was the youngest person to ever make the All-American casting team. At age 12, she won a gold medal in the Women's World Casting Championships. She's the youngest gold medal winner. At age 14, she won the Women's Trout Accuracy Competition for the second time, scoring 52 points in 30 to 50 mile an hour wins. God she also it. won gold in the woman's salmon distance cast with a cast of 189 feet. Oh, 189 my. feet. Yeah, I've she heard won. so much about her, man. It's yes. unbelievable. She won silver in the sea trout distance with a casting competition with 161 feet. So when we think about Joan Wolf, her longest cast, 161 feet, this is a silver medal now. And I should also mention that she uses an old rod and an old level line as well. So 189 feet. 
That is insane. Yep. Oh my God. Heather Hudson. Heather Hudson, the the owner of United Women on the Fly. So from Seattle, she had the uh uh the foresight to create a group that was just for women in fly fishing. It started as Seattle Women on the Fly and then now has grown internationally, where you can literally wherever you live, you can find a United Women on the Fly chapter that will hook you up with women and get you out on the water with people who are like-minded. Yes. Uh, Kathy Beck. Kathy Beck. Oh, okay. From Northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, you know, she started fly fishing programs. She's very well known as, um, as photographer and travel for her photography and her travel guides. She's owned the Fishing Creek Outfitters, you know, which she just recently sold. But man, someone who, if you're into photography and into, um, fishing programs, you want to go with Kathy Beck. Yeah, it's great caster and uh, her and her husband have written so many great articles, contributed so much to a magazine that I used to be the regional editor for Fly Fisherman magazine for 25 years. And uh, yeah, great, great, uh, great lady and great fly tire, great inventor of patterns, good stuff. Linda Leary. Linda Leary. So Linda Leary's story is very interesting. She lives in Alaska. She she actually bought women's fly fishing from Pudge Kleinkoff. But before that, she owned a company in Alaska called Carlisle Trucking. And if you've ever heard of the reality show Ice Road Truckers, Carlisle yeah. Trucking was on that Ice Road Truckers reality show. Well, when she sold that company, she started a company called Fishy Wear, which we talked about as far as women's clothing. Um, so she's she creates uh, colorful patterns for women, um, specialized packs, specialized rod carrier tubes. Um, she just is gives women the opportunity to actually look like women on the water and not like uh, you're dressed in your grandpa's old clothes. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Meyer. Jerry Meyer, uh, we talked about the Driftless area. So Jerry and her husband co-own a, a fly shop in the Driftless area called the Driftless Angler. Uh, she had the foresight about uh, six, seven, eight years ago to start a woman's fly shop. It's womensflyshop.com. It's a website where you can find any type of women's gear that you want. She would travel to all these different shows, bring every size, every, like we talked about how much real estate women's gear takes up in a fly shop. Well, all you needed to do is go to womensflyshop.com and find anything that you might need. Uh, April Archer. April Archer, the owner of Cerebella Rods. She's out in Colorado. Um, she has a rod building business that has veterans and survivors, um, like uh, any kind of different type of survivor that you have. And you think about veterans or you think about um uh, people that have cancer, that kind of stuff. She hires only them to help build rods to give them the ability to earn money to support uh, themselves. Um, Michelle Cummings. Michelle Cummings. So Michelle Cummings is a woman who wrote a book. She was not a fly and she wanted to step outside of herself and write a book. She wrote this book, The Real Sisters. Um, right. It's a very interesting book. It was not, since she was not a fly angler when she started writing it, but then became one. It's a really easy, fun read, but she literally likens the the uh, the the characters in her book to the parts of a fly rod. So if you think of the butt section, there's a a grandmotherly type person in there, all the way to the hook, which is a tattooed, pierced kind of 
brash kind of woman. And it's the story of how they come together the same way that we come together in fly fishing, the same way that a rod comes together in order for us to catch fish. So very interesting, really great read. If you're out there, you're looking for something to read on the, uh, on the bank of a river. This is it. Okay. And so many uh, others. Um, uh, Dehan Cherry, owner yeah, of Fly Girl Global. Yeah, Deegan Cherry. So Deegan, Deegan Cherry wrote for us. She's a very young girl. She wrote for us when she was, I think, seven years old. And she wrote an article called um, Brook Trout and Blueberry Pie about fishing in the Catskills with her grandmother. Um, she and her dad, um, she's a very active fly angler very, from a very young age. This is her passion. Well, her dad and her had saved up a bunch of money. They're not well-to-do. They, they saved up a bunch of money so that they could do this um, tour where she would meet other young girls in the fly fishing world. And then the pandemic happened and she wasn't able to go. So she started to connect with all of these girls, these young girls online and would hold fly time classes and time Times where these young girls could get together called Fly Girl Global. And now she has this, she has amassed a giant following. Fly Girl Global is international where these young girls come together on a regular basis. They tie flies, they get to meet each other, and then they go out and, and they fish together. And so really, I mean, if you're going to watch any different organization that's coming up or any different group that's coming up now in the fly fishing world, you should watch Fly Girl Global. Uh, oh, Susan Thrasher. Sure. Susan Thrasher is, is here. She's a local. I live in Tennessee and she is, um, <clears throat> she's no local to Nashville. She has been a guide for many, many years. <clears throat> she is, uh, she also started Music City Fly Girls. Very big group of women here in the Nashville area that get together and fly fish and uh, educate themselves about fly. But she came out with a fly fishing guidebook that is um, uh, it's it's a fictional story, but based in the experiences that she has had. And, um, and I guess it's not it's not fictional. It's written as a story, but it's uh, uh, stories that she has encountered as an angler and as a female guide here in the Nashville area telling their stories. So it's a fun book to pick up. It's out there right now. It's relatively new. Wonderful. Uh, Lilia Foggia. Yeah. Lilia Foggia wrote a book called Real Women. Um, this book right here, interesting. Um, you know, back in the day, I don't remember what year this was written in. It was written some time ago, but this is actually uh, 80, over 80 women that were, that have done something remarkable in fly fishing um, by that time. I think it was written in the 80s, maybe. But um, interesting, if you're looking into even more women, we can't possibly talk about all of them today, but um, 80 women in this book right here, a real women. Wonderful. Um, you know, uh, I don't know much about her, but another royal from 1879, Princess Louise. Um, she was sort of the rogue and rough and tumble, sort of like the other, uh, the other like, uh, what was her name? Uh, I forgot her name. Uh, the, the redheaded royal that was always the the oh, fiery, yeah. Uh, yeah, the fiery one that just, you know, just was doing things. And she came to the Grand Cascopedia to salmon fish. And um, and she fell in love with the river and the outdoors, and she roughed it out in the cabin. And she was big. The guys, she was a legend up there. If you go to the Cascopedia and go to the Cascopedia Fly Fishing Museum, there, uh, she was she was quite the legend. Um, and of course, Queen Elizabeth loved to fly fish uh, and some great Atlantic salmon fly tires. Um, Judith Dunham wrote a beautiful artistic book 
uh, on the art of the salmon fly. Uh, that's an um, absolutely gorgeous one. Uh, Linda Bashand, um, who was introduced to me by uh, Jim Aswell uh, in the in the Atlantic salmon fly tying competitions. She travels the world a lot. She's in Italy a lot. I see. A lot of her Facebook posts from Italy. She travels, I think, with her husband quite a bit. Or uh, I don't know, Linda, but uh, I'm just your your stuff is amazing. Your flies are amazing. Uh, you've done so well. Um, and uh, of course, uh, our own um, Ann Miller, um, our local legend, our insect master. Ann Miller, Hatch Guide for the Upper Midwest Streams, and just got it republished. It was written a while ago, and then she got it republished again. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. Um, any comments on these people, um, Jen? Yeah, I mean, specifically Ann Miller. I mean, I've known Ann for years. In fact, when I took my first casting class, it was through the Michigan Fly Girls, and Ann was leading it. It's the only reason that I took a fly casting class, because even though I was, I'm a strong woman and I'm, and I can hold my own. It still to me was intimidating. So knowing that there was the Michigan fly girls that offered this fly time class, uh, eons ago under Anne's tutelage, I took that class and, and really, literally that class has changed my life as well. Being involved with Ann Miller and the Michigan fly girls in that area. Her new book, the, the re-edition of her book is spectacular. It's on the, the hatches. If you live in that area, you definitely need it in your arsenal. You should keep it in your, in your pack. You should study it. It's instrumental in helping you become a better angler and catch more fish in the Midwest. Yeah. And, um, and uh, she's a real smart lady. I mean, I, I've had the pleasure of having her in my boat and man, she is so, so bright and so knowledgeable about everything. Every facet and, and her and Dorothy Schramm and, and Jim yeah. Schramm, they started that whole thing and uh, some some pretty amazing things. Uh, of course, um, uh, artists, let's talk a little real quickly about artists. Uh, you know, A.D. Maddox out in Montana now, she has her studio. We did a full feature piece of her in, in my Hollowed Waters journal. Um, really smart. Uh, Andrea Larco, any, any mentions, uh, anything you'd like to add to that, Jen? Sure. You know, there are a lot of women that are artists now in the space, in the fishing space, but I would say that A.D. Maddox, definitely originally from Nashville, as she's an oil painter, and she definitely is the foundational female artist. When I think about female artists in the space today, I think A.D. Maddox, um, uh, even though there are a lot more of them like Andrea Larico or Jessica Callahan, I, I still think A.D. Maddox is our capstone as far as female artists. I mean, her her work is legendary. It hangs in some of the most influential homes in the world. Um, if you're looking for a fly fishing artist Aiden Maddox is your person yeah amazing and then Pamela Bates uh took her uh took the book that was being written uh that masterpiece that Bates masterpiece and finished that book and uh it's still the bible on Atlantic salmon fishing um any any I think that's that's just there's just so many great things that have written so many great artists you know I'm going to mention a couple names uh Kiki Galvin a good friend of mine Kiki if you're listening out in Virginia Hi, you're, Kiki. You're, you're you're a diehard rock and roller man. You're on the river every day. Um, you're doing amazing things. Jessica DiLorenzo, I did a cover um, with Ross Purnell at Fly Fisherman. She was holding up this big, huge, beautiful 16-pound steelhead that she caught on her own, wasn't caught by me or some other guy. She's, uh, she's a wonderful lady. She's also a very phenomenal photographer. I featured a lot of her photography and in my both my Nexus book and my selectivity book uh, that she took down in uh, at uh, 
in Argentina, Chair del Fuego at, um, at, uh, geez, forgot the name of the lunch. Um, um, but anyways, there's so much good stuff out there. Uh, Vala, good old Vala, Arnie's daughter, Vala Ardantur, Ardantur in Iceland, tremendous spaycaster. Uh, Vala, uh, your stuff is amazing. Your, your photography, your writings, um, Keep up the great work. Daniela Bevilacqua in, in Switzerland. Uh, I featured her in my selectivity book. Um, a couple Scottish ladies, uh, Lucinda Ewen, um, very stylish young Scottish lady. That's an incredible Atlantic salmon fisherman. And also Samantha Data uh, and uh, Ann Woodcock, my good friend at Fishpal, the booking agent in UK. Uh, some um, uh, Anne helped me out a lot with uh, my trips in Scotland. Uh, and when I was stranded on the River Tay at Dun Dunkeld Lodge, uh, you helped me out there tremendously. So great stuff. Uh, also, Whitney Gould, tremendous spaycaster. Uh, she's uh, been doing a lot of lecturing and casting demonstrations uh, lately. So, yeah, you could just keep going on and on and on. Uh, but that pretty much sums it up. Uh, do you have any more things you'd like to add before we get into one minute zip clips? Miss uh, Jennifer Ripa? <laughs> so I would I would say we'd be remiss if we didn't mention two more women and I will just mention their names. Uh Rachel Finn, who has been a guide in oh, yes, Rachel Finn for sure. Forever. Um a really, really, I mean, salty fly guide, uh, really great woman. Um, she actually a lot of people don't realize it, but she has an art degree from Yale. So we're not wow. talking about someone who's uneducated, just brilliant woman and as beautiful as an artist as she is, she's even a better guide. And then Sarah Gardner from the Outer Banks. You know, these two women have been there, they have not gotten the recognition that I believe they should have. They are the women in the sport who have done it for the sheer love of doing it and not for the publicity. And it shows because not a lot of people talk about them, both of them instrumental. Yeah. And you know what? And you see, if you just go to YouTube, you see, go to Instagram, you go through anything on stories and reels, and you see so many great women fly fishing guides today. There are so many of them yeah. and they're so passionate about what they're doing. And there's countless hundreds of names that we could keep including here. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, we, we're mentioning names. And what is a name? A name is really nothing. It's about the passion that the soul and the spirit of these people. And, and a lot of the greatest names in fly fishing will never be heard. You'll never yep. hear their name. You won't know who they are. But I'll tell you what, they will kick your ass any day on the river. They will have more knowledge than you'll ever have. And the more I get involved, the more I dive into things, uh, the more I the more I explore, there's so many layers and layers of knowledge that is amazing. And and you all you people that are listening are all part of this thing. And, and it just goes on and on. Keep the passion burning. And um, the, 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 the hero of this whole thing is the fish and the hollowed waters and the rivers. And that's what it's all about. You're just you're just invited to come to the party by them and, 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 and partake, enjoy and bless them and, and appreciate everything that you have. So one minute zip clips. We're going to ask Jen Ripple. This is my doer's profile. We're going to ask Jen of all her little, of all her little secrets are going to come to the surface. So oh first one is Jen. What is your favorite movie of all time? Uh, Sixth Sense. Okay. Favorite book of all time? Uh, Tampa Traffic. 
favorite fly fishing book of all time? Fly fishing book of all time. Uh, the Treatise of Fishing with an Angle. Beautiful. Um, what is your favorite libation? First wine? Uh, so I like a Sauvignon Blanc. If you don't drink, that's okay. You could say like, like Mike Lawson. I asked Mike Lawson, what's his favorite drink? He goes, I don't drink. So <laughs> he said, so you oh, could say Dr. Pepper. <laughs> I definitely drink. I like okay. a good Sauvignon Blanc in the summer and I'm a scotch drinker. Oh, oh, scotch drinker. I'm a what's your favorite scotch? Uh, Glenfiddich. Single malt. Single malt. Single malt. Uh, Glenfiddich. Glenfiddich. Okay. Um, and uh, do you beer, drink beer occasionally? Uh, occasionally I drink beer. Not as much as I, I it's should. It's got to be a Wisconsin beer. Ah, uh, yeah. Hams, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, of course. Spotted cow. And uh, cheese. What's your favorite cheese? Uh, cheddar. Oh, it's a Wisconsin cheddar. You can't beat it. Uh, what is, if you had to have one final meal, what would be your f most delicious meal that you love? Um, I would say it has to be a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, if I caught you fishing tomorrow, what rod would you be using? I don't What's your H3? personal favorite? Your favorite rod that you like to do? I know you got to be watch out because you're you you're gonna piss off some companies, but I don't care. I don't care. My favorite go-to rod right now, the Orvis H3. Oh, wonderful. I, I adore that rod. See, Tom, Tom, if you're listening, it's you, baby. It's you guys. It's it's Sean. Sean, That's Sean right. Combs. Um, uh, what what's your favorite reel? My favorite reel. Um, I really like the Hardy, um, the Hardy Ultra Quick. I love that reel. I think it's a great reel. Hardy's doing a phenomenal job. They do a they phenomenal are. job. Uh, are you a monofilament or fluorocarbon person or both? It depends. If I want it to sink, I'm a floral person. And if I want it to float, I'm a mono. Okay, what's your favorite line? Uh, I like the Rio Gold lines. I like their trout lines a lot. Okay, if you had three top destinations for you that you would die to be in for the rest of your life to fish, where would they be? Top three. Ooh, the rest of my life. I like Calgary. Um, Bow River. My, yes, the Bow River and the tributaries off of that are uh, that would definitely be one. I know that it's not politically correct, but I really like fishing in Cuba. And I would say Argentina. Your favorite dessert? Uh, trifle. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> well, I think that pretty much sums it up, Jen. This has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, you have enlightened us so much for all us old white dudes and all young us on young white dudes and black dudes and girl dudes and colored dudes and all kinds of nationalities and relations and, and everything in the world, you have brought a whole new perspective to us because um, this has been really enlightening. And I really appreciate you spending the time um, because I've been wanting to have a lady talk about the ladies mystique and the wonderful legacies that you have brought us. So on that note, Jen, you have been a darling. You have been wonderful. You have been knowledgeable. And I can't say enough more superlatives. Any final parting comments? Any words of wisdom, Jen, that you could give to us? Yeah, I'd like to say thank you for even having the foresight, foresight to have women on here. So thank you for allowing me the platform. Thank you so much. And it was my pleasure. On that note, we bid you adieu. 
Au revoir, au revoir, dovidzenia, das vidania, and uh, adios till next time on Hallowed Waters Podcast. Goodbye.